You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you in further. You step forward little by little not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I am Nick Peters, your host, and uh, if you're wondering what happened to last week, I want you all to know that I happened to come down with the stomach flu, and unfortunately, it was a gift that kept on giving, and while I was over it by Friday, my wife was just coming down with it, and the last thing I thought was, I don't want to be here on the air interviewing someone and have her throw up or anything, and I can't do anything to help her out. So, life comes first, that's the way it is, but Cynthia will be more than happy to come back here sometime, and she was a great help to us, <laughs> and seeing as she was quite familiar being a mother with stomach food, and she told us several things we can do to help out. And uh, today, I, I hope the sound quality is good for you all out here. We have a new computer here, and new equipment, we had to reach into the deeper waters funds that we have, but it's kind of necessary way the ministry work goes, so I really hope everything works out. We've still got a few kinks that we're working out of the system, so please excuse if there's any difficulties whatsoever. But today we're returning, of course, to bring you the best in the project's information, and my guest is Louis Marcos today, and I'm always thrilled to have someone else from HBU come on the show because I know I'm getting good quality from Houston Baptist University. So uh, who is uh, Dr. Marcos? Dr. Marcos holds a BA in English and History from Colgate University and an MA and PhD in English from the University of Michigan. He is a professor of English and scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University where he teaches courses on British Romantic and Victorian poetry and prose the classics C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien in film. Dr. Marcos holds the Robert H. Ray Chair in Humanities and teaches classes on Ancient Greece and Rome for HBU's Honor College. He is the author of nine books, From a Curious to Christ, Why Christians Should Read the Pagan Classics, Pressing Forward, Alfred Lord Tennyson in the Victorian Age, The Eye of a Beholder, How to See the World Like a Romantic Poet, Lewis Agonistes, How C.S. Lewis Can Train Us to Wrestle with a Modern and Postmodern World, Apologetics for 21st Century, which is a book we're going to be talking about today. Restoring Beauty, the Good, the True, and the Beautiful, and the Writings of C.S. Lewis Literature. Literature, a Student's Guide. On the Shoulders of Hobbits, The Road to Virtue in Tolkien and Lewis in Heaven and Hell. Visions of the Afterlife in Western Poetic Tradition. His tenth Giants in the History of Education, C.S. Lewis, is due out later this year, it looks like. He has also published an e-book, A to Z, with C.S. Lewis, and all these are available at his Amazon offer page. So, uh, Dr. Marcos, welcome to the Deeper Waters podcast. It's great to be here, and I'm so glad to hear you and your wife have recovered your health. Well, for the most part, we have. We're still trying to get used to the diet situation and such. I, I've still had some stomach pains, we you know, and my mother thinks it's a kind of indigestion that's going to be going away, but... I, I, it really just beats 
puking constantly and everything else. <laughs> yeah, that's not much fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I had to miss my reading for a few days, and I think that's understandable. But it, it's great to have you here on the show here. Now, tell us also about this book, Giants, My History of Education. Has that come out already or not? It should be out. I, we did the, the last review, so it should be out either before Christmas or maybe in early January. Okay. It's a new series that's going to be published by Classical Academic Press. They publish mm -hmm. for classical Christian schools mm -hmm. and homeschoolers. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've been very excited. A lot of my books are sort of geared toward this growing interest in classical Christian education. I think C.F. Lewis would have been excited by this movement. Mm -hmm. Now, tell us a little bit about how it is you got to be doing what you're doing today. Well, I'll tell you, I've got an interesting background, Nick. Uh, today, I, I call myself an evangelical. I'm at a Baptist church. But I grew up and came to know Christ in the Greek Orthodox Church. My last name is mm -hmm. Greek, and all my grandparents were born in Greece. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting because, you know, usually in, in Sunday schools and, in, in, you know, in, in the Greek Orthodox Church, you kind of learn history and things. Uh, but our priest had a love of C.S. Lewis. And so when we graduated, you know, from levels of Sunday school, I was given, with the other kids, a copy of Mere Christianity. Mm -hmm. And another year, I was given a copy of the Screwtape Letter. So early mm -hmm. on... I read, like a lot of kids, I read the Chronicles of Narnia, but the first time I read them, I didn't recognize all the Christian allegory. <laughs> yeah. It was later on when I read it again, and then my eyes were opened. Mm -hmm. And so, really, C.S. Lewis has been there at every stage of my growth, not only spiritually, but I'm an English professor, as, as C.S. Lewis was. And so, you know, Lewis has actually written, my book's not about this, but Lewis has written a lot of famous books about Milton, uh, he writes about Dante, he writes about, you know, literature in general, and, I, and I've been influenced by those books as well. Mm -hmm. And again, Lewis has always been there as a constant companion, really, really influenced me. But what happened was, uh, it's been about, about, about 14, 15 years ago, I did a lecture series with a group called The Teaching Company. They're also known as The Great Courses. Yes. And about 15 years ago, I did a, a series with them called, it's a long series, it's called Plato to Postmodernism, Understanding the Role of the Author and the Essence of Literature. And it went well, so they wanted something else. And I said, well, I love C.S. Lewis. And they you know, hired me to do that, and what that forced me to do is go back and reread everything, take copious notes, take cross references, and it just and then I realized how much of the way I thought about Christianity and literature had been had been influenced by Lewis. I didn't realize it until I went back and reread everything. And so that series went well and then it led to a, a cover article in Christianity Today, again about twelve, thirteen years ago. Uh, and then that led to a book called Lewis Agonistes. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, every year I'm either teaching Chronicles of Narnia or I'm teaching Lord of the Rings as well. Uh, I just finished teaching a class on C.S. Lewis Apologetics. So I just come back and forth to him. I'll, I'll tell you, Nick, I mean, C.S. Lewis, I mean, you'll be hard-pressed to find a Christian apologist in America who wasn't influenced by Lewis. But mm -hmm. what makes him special to me is that I was sort of doubly influenced by him because he was an English professor. And so the way I think of myself as a professor, the way I think of myself as an apologist, as a mere Christian, is so. the way I think of myself as a generalist rather than a specialist, so many of these things are influenced directly by Lewis. And as you'll see, my book is not all about Lewis, about 25% is, but it, it's sort of grounded in Lewis and then taking it from there into the modern period because he just laid down such a, a great framework. Uh, and and uh, again, I, I keep going back to him, just like all the apologists do. Yeah, I've 
I, I, I was I'm with you with a whole lot of that because honestly, the first time I read lyrics, I wasn't familiar with a Christian allegory. Oh wow! And, and so then when I I heard about, yeah, that that makes sense now. So you go back and you look, and yeah, I still need to go back through the Chronicles of Narnia sometime. And uh, I like how you got a copy of a screw tape letter. That's actually my favorite book of Lewis's is a screw tape letter, which I understand was probably his least favorite book because he had such a hard time he, writing he, it. Yeah, he said he didn't enjoy it. He said it gave him a sort of spiritual cramp because he had to get in the mindset of the devil. And, mm-hmm. and as Lewis said, you know, it's all dust and ashes. And he mm-hmm. said he really didn't enjoy it. But, you know, you mentioned I teach in the Honors College, and I do it. This is a voluntary thing. But each new freshman class, one you know, one letter a week, I take them through the entire screw tape letters. Each new freshman class, because I think it's a great way to get them thinking about moral and ethical decision making, behavior, mm-hmm. all of these things, and in a way. And and I don't know if, if your listeners know, but Focus on the Family several years ago did a radio play version of the screw tape letters, which is mm-hmm. wonderful. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't think you can make a play out of that, but they do a one, and they got Andy Circus, the voice of Gollum. Uh, to actually play screw tape, uh, and so every year I'm going back again to the screw tape letters, and I never get tired of it. It's not exactly what you call an apologetics book, and yet it's so full of wisdom. It, I would almost call it a pre-evangelism book. I mean, it can mm. be read by a non-believer, and it will spark a moral, ethical sense in you. <laughs> Unless you're absolutely dead, it, mm. it will make you stop and reassess your life and realize the sort of need for grace. It, mm-hmm. It's amazing how much um, an influence that book has had in so many different ways. Yeah, and I understand there's even an audio version of it that's read by John Cleese of the Monty Python yes. thing. Yeah. The last time I checked, I still don't think they converted that to, to CD. I, I've got an old cassette version. Mm. I hope they will reissue it. Uh, mm. There's also another version that's quite well done that's read by Joss Ackland. Mm. Now, he's the actor who played C.S. Lewis in the BBC version of Shadowlands. Mm-hmm. Most people know about the Anthony Hopkins version, yeah. but there's an earlier BBC TV version, mm-hmm. uh, and, and there's, you can buy, I think it's Harper Audio, a, a full one of Josh Ackman reading screw tape, which is quite good, too. Yeah. And C.S. Lewis is still extremely popular and relevant in our culture today. Cause I remember a few years ago when Voyage of a Dawn Treader came out in the movie theater. Yeah. I was in Atlanta, and we went to see it with my in-laws, and my wife and I still talk to this day, stunned about it, when you get to that scene at the end, where uh-huh. the, the, the kids are asking, are we ever going to see see you again? And he says, in in your world, I'm known by another name. The reason you came here could be that you could have known me better there. And we just look like, I cannot believe they kept that line in. I know, I was so happy. So many of us were afraid they were going to drop that scene, and they just did a beautiful version of it. They mm-hmm. Really, they only drop one line, and it's a, it's a good one. Mm-hmm. And, and at, at first, he says, you know, I, you, know I, you, you will also come to Aslan's country, but from your world, you have to cross a river to get there. Of course, he means the River Jordan, which symbolizes death for Christians. Mm-hmm. But he says to her, um, you will have to cross a river, but don't worry, I'm the great bridge builder. Mm-hmm. which is just, you know, beautiful. They, they left that mm-hmm. out. But other than that, that whole scene, and, you know, that's an important scene, Nick, because mm-hmm. a lot of people don't know, Lewis wrote in some of his letters telling parents, don't feel like you have to explain all the Christian links to your children. Mm-hmm. Lewis sort of hoped 
that kids would read it. I think it happened to you and me, maybe, uh, Nick, yeah. that kids would read it and feel a certain way towards Aslan. Mm-hmm. And then when the time was right, we could take those feelings and move them to their proper object, right? Uh, yeah. The whole point I brought to you is that by knowing me a little here, you might know me better there, is what he says to the kids. Yeah. Uh, it, it is amazing, and I'm so glad they did that well. And they're apparently working on the silver chair. Yeah. Uh, well, it'll be a few years, but they're apparently working on it. Yeah, and I do remember there was even a story about someone who wrote to C.S. Lewis care that he was loving Aslan more than Jesus. Yes, yes, you're right. And he said, you know, don't worry, because what you're really loving in Aslan is what's in Jesus. Mm. Now, it's this, one, I mean, you know, oh, this is really relevant, of course, to your book, because you start off talking about C.S. Lewis, and it's extremely relevant today, because I don't, I don't know how many... Christians have started their journey into becoming a Christian. I mean, I, I was raised in a Christian, so this isn't me, but so many atheists became Christians. And one of the starting books, Mere Christianity. Um, right. You probably know one of the most famous converts from Mere Christianity was Chuck Colson, mm-hmm. who just died a few years ago uh, when he was in prison. Yeah. Uh, reading Mere Christianity uh, had mm-hmm. a profound impact on him. Yeah. And you talked about how you had a Greek Orthodox priest who was in love with the writings uh-huh. of C.S. Lewis, and I couldn't help but think right. that uh, Peter Kreeft, a great Catholic yes. philosopher, thinker, he, you ask him, who, who's your favorite theologian? Oh, C.S. Lewis. Well, Nick, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. I, mm-hmm. I wasn't there to witness it, but I, Peter Kreeft told me uh, that there was a big conference many years ago on ecumenicalism, basically mere Christianity. What do we have in common? So there were Catholics, Orthodox, Evangelicals. Mm-hmm. And apparently near the end of the, of the session, Peter Kreeft stood up and he said, I would like to make a motion that what we all share in common as you know, Orthodox believers, small Orthodox believers, is we share the Bible, seven ecumenical councils, and the collected works of C.S. Lewis. <laughs> and apparently everybody that was there broke into applause. So, yeah, Peter Craig is, is just amazing, and his work is so good. Mm-hmm. Um, Why is it, though, that of all the writers, you think Lewis is the one that sticks with all of us so much? I'd say, well, first of all, the obvious one is that now Lewis was an Anglican. He did have beliefs about specific things like, you know, uh, Lord's Supper, baptism, etc., but he purposely sort of, you know, muted those because he felt that what we needed to do at that point in history was to focus on what all believing Christians share, what all believing mm-hmm. creedal Christians share. Mm-hmm. And so that's great because everybody can identify with that. If you're a believer, whatever denomination you're in, Lewis goes to the heart of it. And and I think we sort of take that for granted today because Lewis has influenced so many people, but it was rather rare at that time. Mm-hmm. The other thing about Lewis, and again, this is very important to me as an English professor, of all the apologists I've read, Lewis so perfectly balanced reason and imagination. Oh, yeah. He could make the logical, rational arguments mm-hmm. as good, good as anybody else, but he could also reach us on an imaginative level. The mm-hmm. best example is, is what you just shared, Nick, from the end of The Voice of the Dawn Treader, mm-hmm. that he can speak on an imaginative level that goes directly. I mean, he speaks not only to our logical questions, but to our imaginative yearnings. 
Mm-hmm. A good way to put this is, you know, we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Lewis shows us we need to love him with our imagination as well, with our desire, with our yearning. And, you know, uh, a really, really fine book, I don't know if you've read, Nick, is called uh, Desiring God by John Piper. Yeah. Very, very strongly influenced uh, by C.S. Lewis, as, as mm-hmm. Piper admits himself. Uh, and, and it's kind of funny because, you know, Lewis was certainly not what you would call a reformed person mm-hmm. uh, in, in the terms of Calvinism, and yet, you know, even Calvinists, particularly Calvinists, I, I probably speak at more Presbyterian churches than anywhere, see, you know, the incredible value in Lewis and how he has just woken things up in so many Christians. And the, the only thing that's similar, I don't know if you remember this, uh, but I'm a little bit too young for this, but there was a book called um, A Taste of New Wine by Keith Miller. I don't know if that rings any bells. Doesn't uh, ring him one. There's a, that's even a, I just turned 60. It's a little bit even earlier than I am. But, but it, it was a book that came along in America, and suddenly people that were in the church were having this desire for a deeper spirituality, and they were meeting together and reading and talking, as happened with C.S. Lewis's books. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, probably almost every state now has at least one C.S. Lewis society now. It's amazing how they mm-hmm. sprung up. And, and often it's springing up from the lay people. It, it, it's the layman. It, it's from the. It, it, it's not the, the priests that are organizing this. There's such a hunger. And they're not against it, but there's such a hunger that people in the pews are rising up and, and organizing these things because they want to learn more and dig deeper. And, and Lewis, you know, it's amazing that Lewis himself never traveled to America, but in some ways he's more popular in America than he is in England. I mean, the British still, they kind of know him as the Chronicles of Narnia. They know some of his academic books, but it's really in America, uh, which is the, and as, as you know, Wheaton, Illinois, uh, is, is, has got the biggest C.S. Lewis library, much bigger than anything they have in Oxford or anywhere else in England. Uh, hmm. So America's taken him to, <laughs> we've taken him to our heart. Mm-hmm. You know, I was even thinking about how his works of even fiction really shape yeah. us so much because my view of heaven and hell, I think, is largely influenced because I read The Great Divorce. And it's ah. totally fictional, but it's meant to portray real theology. It is, and that, and that is, you know, if I have to choose one, that is my favorite C.S. Lewis book. I mean, mm-hmm. it's the entire Dante's Divine Comedy boiled down to about 120 pages. Mm-hmm. I read that every year. I just finished teaching it at Houston Baptist in my class, and the insight... See, what I love about him, and I think you're getting at this too, is that Lewis not only explains to us the theology of heaven and hell, he explains what I call the psychology of sin. Mm-hmm. He shows us what sin does to us, and also yeah. what grace to us, not just theologically, but psych... See, he shows us how a person, again, psychologically, can choose hell. That seems mm-hmm. crazy and impossible, yet he shows us. You know, in, in a nutshell, uh, it's a fantasy where people get to, uh, people in hell get to go on a bus and take it up to heaven. And when they get to heaven, they're met by the souls of the saints, people usually that were relatives or friends, and they come to them and try to convince them, even now, to give up their sin, their, their, their disobedience and rebelliousness, and, and embrace the, the grace of Christ. And Lewis shows us how all but one person actually chooses to go back to hell. And again, mm-hmm. we understand it not only theologically, but psychologically. Mm-hmm. You know, some of your listeners may have had a chance to see the great Max McLean, he's a great Christian sort of orator. He did a one-man show of the Screwtape Letters that toured all over the country. Mm-hmm. Well, just this past year, he started a new one on the great divorce. Now, this is not a one-man show. There's three actors, and he's actually not one of the actors. Um, 
but he's done a wonderful job trying to visualize on stage the great divorce and, mm-hmm. and these dialogues between the the saint and the sinner and and and, and, and again the yearning and then they just it's really worth worth seeing it's one of those things that'll you know pop up in major cities like Houston and LA and Chicago and it kind of moves around yeah another series of fiction and I think has a lot of influence and many people aren't as familiar with this one when I told that my aunt and uncle live next door they have a nurse that comes and stays with him at night and I told her about these books I never knew he wrote that and that was his space trilogy yeah. I wrote and what what I've told people is that you know when you get to the first one you go through it's really great you go to the second one it's really great when you get to the third one you start reading that one and for a while it seems kind of slow because you're wondering right. what does this have to do with the rest of them this doesn't fit in this isn't about space at all but by the time you get to the last half it's oh my gosh I, I, and and honestly, the character of Reverend Strake in that one, yeah. I, I consider him one of the scariest characters in fiction. Yeah, oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Funny, there's there's two books that I teach Tolkien as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, I, you meet lots of people that love Tolkien. Mm-hmm. And you know, when I ever meet somebody, then I ask them, well, have you read the Silmarillion? And I can't tell you how many people say to me, well, I started it, but I never finished it. That's, <laughs> well, more, with that's me too. Lewis, <laughs> th- th- there we go. I mean, it, it, it's a thick book. It's hard to get into. Yeah. It's the same way with the book you were talking about. The Space Trilogy, part one is called Out of the Silent Planet. Mm-hmm. Part two is called Perilandra. And part three is That Hideous Strength. And yep. what's interesting about those, that trilogy is unlike The Lord of the Rings. Well, The Lord of the Rings is not really three books. It's one book. But those three books all stand on their own, Lewis's Space Trilogy, if you want to read them all, but they all stand on their own if, if you need to read them out of order or whatever you want. Um, it's sort of like the Chronicles of Narnia. But that hideous strength, I mean, almost everything that Lewis sort of believed and wrote in his other books appears in there in one form or another. It's, it's unbelievable. And you're right, it takes a while to get into it. It starts as a sort of domestic novel, and it, it, it waxes into... Well, oddly, the closest thing to it is, I don't know, again, if your listeners have, have, have ever read uh, This Present Darkness. That was a huge thing when it came out from yeah. Freddy. Yeah, I've oh, read it. That, that book, in many ways, was influenced by that hideous strength, but really, they were both influenced by a man named Charles Williams, one of the Inklings, Decent who wrote the the kind of odd novels. I don't know if you've tried them, but they, what, what, what they had in common, what was unique about Peretti's book when it came out, is it was a novel about spiritual warfare, really, but with regular everyday characters. Mm. This is not, you know, priests and nuns and monks or something like that. This is everyday people, and yet we see the spiritual sort of breaking in. It's also one of the, the greatest parodies of the problems in academia. Uh, it, it, it just gets to the root of so many problems. In our mind. And, and anybody that reads that hideous strength and loves it, must also read a book by Lewis called The Abolition of Man. Oh, yes. Now, The Abolition of Man is should be required reading for all educators, at least. Mm-hmm. But really, if you read The Abolition of Man and then read That Hideous Strength, That Hideous Strength is almost a fictionalization of The Abolition of Man. Yeah. Uh, because so many of the ideas sort of cross-pollinate between the two of them. Uh, and people should know that the Space Trilogy was written before Narnia. Yeah. He wrote the space trilogy in the late uh, 30s and the mid to uh, and the early to mid 40s, mm. and Narnia didn't come till the early 50s. It, so it, that was the first thing he wrote. I found it interesting that you mentioned Tolkien and all that because, uh-huh. if I'm correct, Ransom in the space trilogy, the main character is supposed to be J.R.R. Tolkien. 
It is, and there's kind of a story to this. In, mm. in the first book, Out of the Silent Planet, our hero, his name is Ransom, mm. uh, our hero is a philologist. I mean, that's what Tolkien was, mm. and was very much based on him. And that's also sort of the case in the second book. But the third book, <laughs> Ransom morphs from Tolkien to being Charles Williams. Mm-hmm. And, and Tolkien was kind of upset about that. He was, he was a little bit jealous of, of Lewis's friendship with Charles Williams. And, uh, but you can see it. He's, not, he's, a, he's almost a different person. Of course, you know, he's come back from literally fighting the devil um, in the second book. And, uh, and what's interesting about the second book, Paralandra, is it's a sort of replay of the Garden of Eden, except yeah. that we don't fall. <laughs> and that book can be paired up with Lewis's book, A Preface to Paradise Lost. Hmm. About the same time he wrote the novel, he wrote one of the famous studies of Milton's Paradise Lost. Hmm. So they, 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 again, there's this cross-pollination going on there. The first novel, Out of the Silent Planet, is like an H.G. Wells novel. It's a straight sci-fi. The second book, Paralandra, is what we call a theodicy. It's a meditation on God's justice and the origin of evil and all that. Mm-hmm. And then the third book, like I said, is almost a spiritual warfare novel. Mm-hmm. So many things going on mm-hmm. uh, in it uh, that it, it really it almost defies categorization, that hideous strength. It's so strange. Uh, but again, it, it's full. I mean, it, it, even, it even offers insight into the sort of uglification of modern culture and what it does to us. I mean, mm-hmm. there's so much is going on in that novel. Yeah, and also with Tolkien, a lot of people might be surprised to learn that Tolkien did not like the Chronicles of Narnia. It's a shame, Nick, because <laughs> if it wasn't for Lewis, the, Chron- the Lord of the Rings might never have been written. Now, mm-hmm. Lewis did not in any way help Tolkien write it, but Lewis, for a long time, Lewis and Christopher Tolkien... The, the son, who's still alive, it must be mm. 90 or something by now, um, were the only fans of The Lord of the Rings. It was Lewis that kept pushing him, you have to finish this. Yeah. And when it was published, Lewis wrote one of the first positive reviews of it. But unfortunately, there was a few reasons. Tolkien didn't like The Chronicles of Narnia because he felt they were too allegorical. You know, Tolkien was very much about being a sub-creator and creating something sort of totally other. Mm. Uh, and so... And then the other reason he didn't like him is he felt that they were too... I mean, you, you need to understand, I, part of it was jealousy, because you need to understand that, you know, it's hard to say for sure, but if you look at the letters and all, I would say that Lewis probably spent no more than two months writing each of the Chronicles of Narnia. I mean, the actual writing of them. I mean, mm-hmm. and if you look at the original manuscripts, half the time there's almost no cross-outs. He just keeps writing and writing and writing. I mean, mm-hmm. they, he did it in his spare time. It was fun. But Tolkien felt, because of that, that the, the Chronicles of Narnia are sort of inconsistent and, and hastily put together, and there are contradictions. Well, let's be fair, okay? Compared to the Lord of the Rings, creation was a slapdash job. I mean, God only had six days. I mean, you know, it, it's unbelievable. I mean, it, it, Lewis was not trying to write this entire consistent world. And mm-hmm. in fact, it's kind of funny mm-hmm. when they made the line to Lewis in the Wardrobe. They did a good job with the movie, but they really wasted a lot of money trying to create all these species and give them their own pedigree, because Lewis didn't really care about that. Tolkien cared very much about that. Um, but that, that kind of hurt Lewis, that, that Tolkien just couldn't see the value in there. And one of the other things that was kind of sad is Tolkien was not necessarily even a fan of Lewis's um, apologetic works, because... For two reasons. First of all, Tolkien was Catholic, and Catholics tend to be a little more private about their faith. I think that's been changing, but you know, tend to be more private about their faith. So, 
he wasn't crazy about the idea of Lewis writing uh, apologetics, but Tolkien was also an academic, and he felt that since Lewis was not a specialist in theology, he shouldn't really be writing those books. He should leave them to the theologians and the priests. Hmm. So it's kind of a shame that Tolkien you know, didn't quite uh, have the, the support for a lot of Lewis's work, and Lewis was very supportive of Tolkien all the time. Um, but, you know, but they, they still, and, you know, there, were, there was a little bit of strain on their friendship back and forth, um, but, you know, for various reasons. Lewis's late marriage put a little bit of a strain, too. I mean, his wife was, after all, divorced, you know, mm-hmm. and, and I, oddly, mm-hmm. if his wife had been a Catholic, I'm sure the Catholic Church would have given her an annulment. I mean, her husband was serially unfaithful, alcoholic, basically abandoned her. I mean, I, she probably would have gotten an annulment if she'd been Catholic, oddly enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there was a little strain in the friendship towards the end. Yeah. You know, it's interesting to hear about how Lord of the Rings apparently wasn't well-received, because <clears throat> if I'm not reading or doing something like that, one of the things I like to do on weekend when I listen to other podcasts and such is I'm playing a game at the same time, and many times uh-huh. it can be something like Final Fantasy, <laughs> for instance. Uh-huh. And that's the role-playing genre. Every single gamer who's into the role-playing industry today owes it to the Lord of the Rings, I think. Oh, you're right. Everything comes out of that. I mean, basically, basically, Tolkien invented a new genre, mm-hmm. epic fantasy. Mm-hmm. You know, it seemed like the epic, you know, Homer, Virgil, Dante, it mm-hmm. seemed like the epic was dead, and Tolkien comes along and reinvents it. I mean, basically, mm-hmm. this is a sort of Homeric, Virgilian epic mm-hmm. in a sci-fi. And, you know, in some ways... Lewis was doing the same thing with his space trilogy, realizing that in the modern world, maybe the best way to play out these moral, ethical dilemmas is to play them out in a fantasy or sci-fi world. Mm -hmm. Uh, I was reading a book recently, I think it's called The Hobbit Party, it was pretty good, And and the author was making the point that a number of great writers, Lewis and Tolkien amongst them, that were part of World War I, I'm sorry, part of World War I or influenced by it, turned to fantasy. Even people like Kurt Vonnegut, right, turned to fantasy, not because they were escaping from reality, but they felt it was drawing them closer to reality, to the real issues of things. Right. Uh, and, and, and anyways, it was an interesting thing. I, it was a, quite a long list of a lot of authors of the 20th century who were embracing something of, of a fantastic, you know, fantasy element, but again, to get closer to the real issues rather than... Mm. Fa- basically, you know... It, in some ways, fantasy can be the new realism. Mm-hmm. It used to be the idea that realistic novels brought you closer to the truth. But in some ways, I think The Lord of the Rings brings... In fact, you know, in some ways, I mean, I think you know this, that uh, back in the year 2000, they took a poll in England, not America, in England, where they read, right? Yeah. <laughs> and they polled the reading public, what was the greatest novel of the century? And overwhelmingly, they chose Lord of the Rings. Uh-huh. And a lot of the academics were really missed by this. They couldn't understand what's going on. But, I mean, every poll they took from different, you know, different categories of readers, they kept putting Lord of the Rings right at the top. Yeah. It is the, you know, I mean, it, you know, it, it, it's, in that sense, it, it's the paradise lost of the 20th century. It is, it is a theodicy, a struggling with good and evil. It's, it's also a struggling with life and death. It's, Tolkien, in one of his letters, Tolkien said, it's really about mortality more than anything else. Uh, and, uh, and the Lord of the, you know, like I said, Chronicles of Narnia is, is not quite as grand a scale, but it's dealing with very serious issues. I mean, we, we could spend an hour talking about The Magician's Nephew and how that one novel exposes the danger of Nietzsche's idea of the Superman. I mean, there, there are some actually very in-depth 
issues that are wrestled out in the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, but you've got to look for them. It's amazing. Yeah, well, it'd be great to spend a whole lot of time talking about that, but we do have to cover more of it, Burke. And I'm focusing on the first part in the first hour of our talk today. And since we've talked so much about Lewis, we should definitely spend some time talking about one of his great influences that sadly too few people know about today, and that's G.K. Chesterton. Oh, he is great. I mean, oh, you yes. know, Nick, if, if there's one thing you'd like to go back in a time machine, I don't know if you know this, but Chesterton, you know, this great apologist, often had live public debates with George Bernard Shaw. Mm-hmm. Now, most people today, when they hear George Bernard Shaw, they think of My Fair Lady, which is based on Pygmalion. And some people right. have this idea that he was this, you know, sweet-tempered, romantic guy. He was not at all. He was, the, the, you know, in some ways, not quite that bad, but he was almost the Richard Dawkins of his day. He was a naysayer, as was H.G. Wells, very much not a Christian. Mm-hmm. And the two of them, though, became good friends. And it's funny, because G.K. Chester was this really heavy guy, mm-hmm. uh, whereas Bernard Shaw was really tall and thin. Uh, and, and, and it must have been great to hear them go back and forth. But, again, Lewis was extremely influenced by Chester. I've got a whole chapter in the book on the everlasting man, because at the end of his life, uh, I think it was just a couple of years before he died, uh, uh, the magazine Christian Century, which, which is still around, Christian Century wrote to Lewis and asked him what the ten books were that influenced him the most. And he put down as one of them, The Everlasting Man by G.K. Chesterton. And what that book does is it gives us a sort of history of the world from a Christian point of view. Mm-hmm. And it's amazing because he gives us insight into not only what God is doing in the Jewish world, but what God is doing in the pagan world leading up to Christianity. He also wrote another book called Orthodoxy. I've got a chapter on that. Those are probably his most famous apologetics books, though, like Lewis, there's a little bit of apologetics in almost everything that Chesterton wrote. He was mm-hmm. just... Both Chesterton and Lewis have earned the title the Apostle of Common Sense. They mm-hmm. had this way of speaking directly to the common man. They, they spoke in layman terms. They, they, they were both very intelligent. I mean, Lewis, particularly, one of the most intelligent academics of the 20th century. I mean, people don't know that Lewis knew something like nine or ten languages. Uh, he... I'm going to speak in American lingo. It's as if he went to graduate school and triple majored and got high honors in all of his majors. I mean, it's, he really is was one of the best uh, students of it. But even though they were these great thinkers, they were able to speak to people where they're at, talk to them directly. And what Chesterton is probably most famous for is his love of paradox. Mm-hmm. And I love Chesterton, but he's a bit of an acquired taste. Because right. sometimes you'll read one of his books, like Orthodoxy, and I swear every sentence he's trying to make a paradox, kind of mm-hmm. make you think outside the box. And it, it's wonderful, but it's kind of exhausting after mm-hmm. a while. And what's funny is in, in my chapters in the book on Chesterton, what I do is I say, okay, I'm going to take you through the book, but I'm going to take you through the book as if Lewis wrote it. In other words, I, I try to make it a little bit more systematic so we can follow some kind of an outline, because he's all over the place. He's so brilliant. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's not organized the way Lewis is, step by step by step. So I, I, I try to you know, uh, you know, give him a little bit of an outline there. But let, let me just give you one example of, of something he says in Orthodoxy mm-hmm. that we need to hear today. Okay. One of the major problems with the modern world, Chesterton says, is we are all taught today to doubt the truth but believe in ourselves. Tolkien said, and Tolkien, Chesterton said, in the older days, we were taught to believe the truth but doubt ourselves. 
And it's a good example of how things are sort of twisted around. People don't know, but Lewis's famous liar, lunatic, lord uh, trilemma really goes back to Chesterton. Uh, Chesterton basically did liar or, or lord, uh, but th- that basic idea of forcing us to you know, rip away the veil and look directly at the Gospels. What does Jesus say? What does Jesus do? No pussyfooting around, no euphemisms, no moving in it. Let's look at it. And what he shows us, is, it's so wonderful. The book Orthodoxy, it's about the romance of Orthodoxy, that the real adventure, the real romance, the real reality is in Christianity, not outside of it. See, both, both Chesterton and Lewis were reacting against something that comes out of the Enlightenment. We still see it in our country today, this idea that somehow Christianity is less real. It's, it's shadowy, it's feelings, it's nothing, but science is real or whatever, this idea. They show us, no, that Christianity is the more real thing. Heaven is more real than earth, mm-hmm. and God is more real than we are. And, and, and that's what, they, they have this sort of vigorous stance. Instead of hiding and saying, oh, you know, just leave us alone to pray and we won't bother you. They, they, they went on the offensive. But they weren't offensive. They went on the offensive, but they are genial, I guess is the word. Uh, you want to read them. You, you, you want to, uh, you know, sit down with them and, you know, have tea and, 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 you know, go back and forth with them because they're trying to talk about real life, not I, – I you know, it drives me crazy, Nick. You know, I, I respect Martin Scorsese as a director, great director. But, you know, he falls under this idea that somehow if you make a movie – that's filled with cursing and horrible this, that it's somehow more real, as, as if that's real life, right? I mean, no, that's real. Most people don't talk like that. Most people don't go around shooting people, okay? I mean, it, it, again, we, we've got this sort of warped sense of what real means today. Mm-hmm. And Lewis and Tolkien, they're like a breath of fresh air. Lewis and Chesterton are like a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. So why is it that... So many people today have heard of Lewis, but so very few seem to have heard of Chesterton. I don't know. I mean, it's. I I will tell you that more and more Lewis fans are crossing over and reading Chesterton. Mm -hmm. In fact, I I mentioned that that, that lecture series I did in in, in the outline. It includes like a big book of outline and you know, sort of bibliography. I included something I wrote called. If you like Lewis, you'll also like it. I sort of went through, if you like this, you'll also like this book and this book. And there's almost a cottage industry of people, because they love Lewis, reading more of the other inklings. I mean, Tolkien, of course, always had his own fans, but more people reading Chesterton, more people reading Charles Williams, more people reading Owen Barfield, more people reading uh, George MacDonald. I mean, people are so excited when they read Lewis that they want to read other things. And he should be better known. I, I don't know. He, he, maybe because he's hard to pigeonhole. Uh, I'll just give you some example of some of the other things. Now, he's probably best known because he invented uh, the great Father Brown detective. There were a whole series of short stories and some novels yeah. about Father Brown. Um, Those I are have, wonderful. I've got a, a little story about that. I, I actually oh, have a copy of the complete collection of the Father Brown oh, mysteries, and I oh. have read through it. And before I got married, I was living with a roommate in Charlotte, and he's big into apologetics also. And uh-huh. I told him he should borrow it sometime and go for me. He said, okay. And he uh, told me that one night he got started, he was going to read one mystery and just have that be it and go to bed. He said, I read three mysteries, and I didn't get to sleep until 1.45 a.m., so thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's right. This is great. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it's I mean, it, it, it's the inside of Father Brown where mm-hmm. you know he solves the crime, but what he really solves is the theological problem, the moral ethical problem at the core. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it, it's they're just wonderful novels. But so he wrote that. Okay, he's got Orthodoxy and he's got uh, the Everlasting Man. There's also another book called Heretics that's a little bit less known. Right. Also, if, if people want a good way to start Chesterton. He wrote two short biographies, maybe 100 pages or so, a mm. short biography of Thomas Aquinas, the one uh-huh. who wrote the Summa, yep. and, and one about, about Francis Assisi, say Francis mm. Assisi. Those mm. are both, some, you might even be able to buy them with both, both of those together in one volume. Those are very, very good. Um, he also wrote poetry. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, he also wrote lots and lots of essays. Also, again, this comes back to me, he wrote some very good books about Charles Dickens, he wrote an excellent book about the Victorian age, which is what I teach. He wrote a book on Robert Browning, one of the famous Victorian poets. So, he, he, you know, his his breath. I mean, he's, uh, he also wrote one of the most madcap novels you'll ever read, called "The Man Who Was Thursday." Oh yes, almost a in, nightmare. Have you, have, you, have you actually read it? Yet? It's crazy. That's right. The, yes. the subtitle is a nightmare. It's, I, I can't even define it. It's so crazy. Um, but it's 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 fun to dig into that and try to think. So we've got this fertile mind. I don't know if you know the story, Nick, but apparently Chesterton could write one essay while dictating another one simultaneously. Wow. That was amazing. We're still finding uh, Ignatius Press, which is a wonderful Catholic press. Uh, mm. Chesterton was a convert to Catholicism. Mm. Uh, Ignatius Press has published the complete works. I mean, I don't know how many volumes there are twelve or something volumes. And I think we're still finding some of his because he was also what do I want to say a, a sort of journalist. I mean, I mean, he wrote for the newspaper, uh-huh. uh, so he was constantly writing things. Uh, and again, they're still being found. But uh, I, I just love him because it, it, it reminds me of uh, okay, if you've ever read Lewis wrote his spiritual autobiography called Surprised by Joy, which is mm-hmm. well worth reading. And yeah, I've read it. If you read, okay, good. So you know that when Lewis was a student, he was he was an atheist at that point. He was also oh, yes. an atheist in his early days as a professor. Mm-hmm. And he said one of the things that grabbed him, okay, he said it amazed me. But as I read, I suddenly realized that all the writers I most loved, the ones that seemed to be the most human, the most passionate, the most genius, and he listed people like uh, you know Milton and, 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 and Chaucer and Spencer and, and, and Samuel Johnson, and he listed Chester and John Donne. They were all Christian. And he said even the pagan authors I loved, like uh, you know, Virgil and, and Sophocles, were the, were the pagans that were the most like Christians. Mm-hmm. And yet, at the same time, all the books that he felt were missing something. They were somehow hollow. They they didn't touch on reality. Were written by people that he otherwise agreed with. People like John Stuart Mill, uh, Voltaire, uh, who else does he list? H.G. Uh, uh, Wells, um, uh, 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 oh, what's that guy's name? D.H. Lawrence. A, a lot of these people that, that he, again, he agreed with their view of life, but there was something missing in their work. And one of my favorite phrases from Lewis is, a young man who wants to remain a sound atheist mm-hmm. cannot be too careful of his reading. Oh, right? yes. And also, at the same time, he realized that the people he met as, as fellow students and then fellow academics, the ones he felt were the most alive, the most real, all turned out to be Christians, you know, including people like Chester. As far as we know, he never met Chesterton. Then their lives overlap a little bit. Uh, but I don't, I don't know if we have any proof that they actually met, but... but Again, the, one of his friends, he said, when I met him, 
I felt like here was a man who could fight a duel, like he was a knight or something. And most, oh my gosh, these are, there must be something going on. I love these people, except their Christianity. Uh, and so he was drawn in that way. And Chesterton, you know, Chesterton is somebody that has a lot of secular fans as well, just as Lewis does, uh, because of the, again, the, the fertility of his mind, the, the way he can move from one genre to another. Uh, he's just unafraid. Uh, I, I'll give you just one, one example, Nick. This is the kind of thing that made Lewis love Chester and makes me love him. In his book, Orthodoxy, he talks about the universe, right? And, and ever since Newton, you know, we have this idea of living in a clockwork universe. Where everything moves exactly, all that sort of stuff. And at first, he thought, well, well, maybe there can be a God behind that, but how can there be a personal God? Right? If we're living in a clockwork universe, then maybe that just suggests a deus God, you know, God who creates and lets it go. And then he stopped and said, now, wait a minute, okay? Think, think about it this way, okay? When you have a child, right, a little kid, and you put the kid on your knee and you bounce him up and down, oh, and the kid laughs, mm-hmm. and you stop and you're tired, and the kid looks at you, and what does he say? Do it again. He says, do it again, right? Again, do it again, more, more. And until you're exhausted, right? He says, well, maybe God makes every daisy the same because he never got tired of making daisies. Mm-hmm. Maybe every morning God looks at the sun and says, do it again. And every night he looks at the moon and says, do it again. Because, he says, we humans, we have grown old and weary, and our Heavenly Father is so much younger than we are. Right? Mm-hmm. In other words, maybe this shows God's exuberance. And I'll give you a good example, Nick. I don't know if you have any children, but no. with, with kids, okay, with kids, if you, like if a seven-year-old, if you tell your little son or daughter a story, right, you better make sure that the first time you tell that story, you tell it the way you like, because God forbid you try to change a detail, right? If you, if you tell the story the second time, and there are suddenly five princesses instead of three, your daughter's going to stop you and say, wait a minute. I thought there were three. And if you say it doesn't make a difference, the child who is right will say, yes, it does make a difference, right? So, I mean, Chesterton does a lot of his apologetics based on fairy tales, right? Mm -hmm. Because fairy tales are folk wisdom. They get to the the, the real human wisdom that's at the core of everything. And he's he's not ashamed to look for wisdom. Uh, One of Lewis's, The Problem of Pain, he even says, and we can even find wisdom if we're not ashamed to look for it in that beautiful book, The Wind in the Willows. Did you ever read that when you were a kid? That's I, more I of a British have. book. I, I know you might the remember, story, I saw the yeah, You might remember sure. when you were a kid watching, uh, watching Mr. Toad's Wild Ride from the Disney movie. Right. Uh, but um, you know, he quotes Wind in the Willows because it gets at, I mean, uh, I don't know. It, it's just, you know, he, Chester has this way of clarifying things. Mm-hmm. You know, he says... You know, the atheist, the materialist, the Richard Dawkins, he's like, he's like the town lunatic, right? Mm-hmm. The crazy man is the man who has one idea and forces everything to fit it, right? Whether you're Marx or Freud or Darwin, it's like I've got one idea and everything has to be fit this one idea. That, that, that's not the, 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 a symptom of health, he says. That's a symptom of the crazy man, right? The materialist has one idea and forces everything to fit it. So it, it's those kind of arguments he makes that, they're, they're not illogical. I would almost call them translogical. They, they, they make us do a leap. Uh, here's another great example. Okay? In The Everlasting Man, he starts by you know, exploding one of the most ridiculous myths, I think, of modern science, and that's the caveman, as if we have any proof whatsoever for the so-called caveman. Uh-huh. And 
he talks about how, well, here's their proof of, of, of the caveman, of some kind of Cro-Magnon. And you, you remember, uh, what is it, Lascaux, you know, the, the, the Lascaux, the cave in, in France, where, you know, you've got the, 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 the paintings of, uh, of gazelle and stuff. You see pictures of that uh, on, on the cave wall. Mm-hmm. And people say, well, here is proof of this, you know, transitional caveman. And Tolkien's, and, and, and Chesterton says, look, whoever drew those pictures was a man. He was not a half man, okay? He was a man. He says, what we find in the cave is not primitive art. It's art made with primitive tools. But it's as much art as the Sistine Chapel. And he then goes on to say, look, I mean, you know, he says it's one thing to suggest maybe some evolution worked on our body. But when you go from animal to man, you are making a leap that is not quantitative. It's not like a little more, a little more, blue, we got a man. It is qualitative. It is not an evolution. It's a revolution, he says. And he says, one thing about man is that we are the only species that makes art. He says, a monkey does not make art. A monkey does not begin to make art. A monkey does not begin to begin to make art. I mean, who, who thinks about things? Chesterton thinks about these things and forces us to look at it. There's something going on here. There's a leap. Chesterton says things like, people keep saying to me, what about the missing link? To which he responds, it's called the missing link because it's missing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, only a modern person uses absence as a proof of presence, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like, like the... Uh, the, the, theolo- the liberal theologians who came up with the idea of Q, uh, you know, where we're marked, you know, and it's like there's no proof of it all. But because we have a name for it, we think it exists, but it doesn't exist. Q means source in, in, in German, quell. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so Tolkien, again, takes people to task. He says, you haven't proven anything. Um, but it, it takes a lot of courage to do that, Nick, especially in academia. It's right. a lot of courage, and and you know, there, there's. I mean, I, I don't think Christians should should mock and over, but I, I think there's such such a thing as a sort of healthy laughter to mm-hmm. stop and think about things and say, you know, what are you talking about? Okay, this this doesn't work. Um, mm-hmm. And and uh, I don't know, just a simple example of that. Uh, this is obviously after Lewis, but um, what was his name? Carl Sagan, who was sort of the Richard Dawkins of his day. Carl Sagan started SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, right? right. And it's still going on. They've got these, you know, huge, um, uh, you know, uh, disks or whatever, you know, searching the universe for any spark, any any proof of intelligent life. And they're scouring. And, you know, if they were to find, like, I don't know, a quasar beating out the prime numbers, they would immediately say, there's proof that there's intelligent life. But then when Sagan and his fellows turned their gaze to our world, and there's abundant proof of design, every, you know, right down to our DNA. They're like, no, that's unscientific. So it, 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 there's an inconsistency there. Mm-hmm. Uh, all scientists actually use intelligent design. If mm-hmm. I'm an archaeologist, I can tell the difference between random stones that fell on the ground and Stonehenge. I, I've got a scientific way of distinguishing between the two. So, again, it, it, it's, it's that kind of thing, that kind of clear thinking that makes us question our assumptions you see, Lewis didn't you know, bother uh, about arguments between literal, six literal days and six figurative days. Lewis got deeper. He asked the bigger question, what is the nature of reality? Is reality a top-down affair? Because that's the Judeo-Christian understanding. You begin with God, in the beginning God, and spirit is primary, and matter comes afterwards. But the modern paradigm in, in, in Europe is a bottoms-up 
everything starts material, physical, natural, and evolves its way upwards. See, Lewis understood how to get behind our arguments, to find out what our presuppositions, our assumptions, are, are, to use an older word, what our paradigms were. Today, apologists use the word worldview. Uh, it's the same basic idea. What, what are our foundational principles? Right? A lot of modern Bible uh, people just do not believe in miracles. They, they, just, they mm-hmm. start from the, the, the a priori assumption, they start with an unproved assumption that miracles don't happen. And so when they read something in the Bible, they have to come up with a scientific explanation, or they have to say it's just a myth. But they never question that presupposition that there's no miracles. An even better example of this is a lot of modern investigators do not believe in prophecy. Because you can't have prophecy unless you have a God who's outside time and space. If you don't have that, all you can have is guessing, right? Well, here's the problem. I don't know if you remember, uh, Nick, you know, reading where, 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 where critics would say, okay, the Gospel of Mark had to have been written after 70 AD, oh, yes. or at least reached its final form. Right? Mm-hmm. You never explain why. Well, we know that in 70 AD, the <laughs> Romans destroyed uh, the Jews, and they did completely demolished the temple. Well, we all know that Jesus made an incredibly accurate prediction. Not one stone will be left upon another. If you don't believe that predictive prophecy is possible, then you must say that that prophecy was written after it happened, mm-hmm. which is what happens in Virgil's Aeneid. But So, uh, again, our presuppositions often push us towards these things. Mm-hmm. When what we really have to debate is that. Uh, you know, wh- where we start, it's really the difference between what we call deduction and induction. And a lot of modern people claim they're doing induction. In other words, they claim everything they say is based on hard facts, Mm -hmm. empirical evidence. Right. But they're really doing what I call deduction in disguise. Mm -hmm. They've already taken for granted something, and then they work backwards from that. And again, nobody's disproven miracles. I mean, David Hume thought he disproved them, but he didn't. Uh, Richard Dawkins hasn't disproven them. Uh, it's, it's, It's a sort of modern prejudice. It's part of the modern worldview that... Those things don't happen. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's the wider Enlightenment project that basically says everything, everything has to have a material, physical, natural explanation. And the, the, the cutting edge of evolution today, Nick, is what we would call the evolution of consciousness. Because now, how does... I mean, even people that don't believe in a soul understand that we have a consciousness, right? Where does that come from? Well, the modern paradigm says... You have to have a physical explanation for that as well. So now we have to figure out how, you know, and, and, and it's kind of interesting, but all the books that are written on the evolution of consciousness are very similar to the evolution of language, because those two really go together. Language, consciousness, conscience, all of these things, these things that set us apart from, from the, the highest animals, from the higher mammals, what is it? Where, where does this come from? How can impersonal nature create personality? It just... It just doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, the when, river doesn't rise above its source. <laughs> yeah, when you were talking about how we've just assumed these kinds of things, such when I've been doing internet dates a lot of times, one of the terms I've coined to describe what I see I'm facing a lot of times is atheistic presuppositionalism. Oh, good way to put it. Yeah. yeah. And again, much, these things are never questioned. Yeah, you just start off with the assumption. Okay, atheism is true. If you disagree with atheism, then ipso facto, you must be a fool, you must be deluded. And then, of course, I'd also add in what you said about reading books, that uh, 
usually when I question me, people ask, okay, when was the last time you really read something that very fundamentally disagreed with you? Uh, I, right. I, I haven't read it, and I, I'm not going to read it because it's not worth the time. Yeah. It's, I, I don't know. And, and, and uh, like I said, you know, this, this modern uh, you know, group of, of apologists are ready to spread out there and ready to learn. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I've learned some things from Freud. I've learned some things from all these people. But, you know, I, I, I disagree with their core assumptions. That's yep. the thing. I can learn methods from them and other things. And, and you know, Lewis himself said, you know, there, there, there's something to be said for psychoanalysis as a method. But I'll just give you one example uh, about where I think Lewis is so clever. He talks about this in, in Mere Christianity. He says, okay, there are some things that psychoanalysis can do, but it can't do everything. Okay? Let's say that I suffer from acrophobia, like fear of heights. And because of that, it, it prevents me from being courageous. So, you know, if I'm up on a mountain top and there's a damsel in distress, I, I, I can't show my courage because I'm blocked by my fear. Okay. Let's say I go to a Freudian psychiatrist, and he cures me of my acrophobia. Does that now make me courageous? It doesn't. It doesn't make me courageous. It doesn't create a virtue. What it does, though, is help put me on a level playing field with you. Mm-hmm. Now, when the damsel's in distress, I'm not, but I still have to make a choice. I still right. might run away out of lack of courage, right? But, mm-hmm. So what he's saying is that, that, yes, psychoanalysis can help, but it does not make us Courageous. I mean, mm-hmm. one of the biggest problems right now, and it, and it runs through so many of our issues with sexuality and stuff, is this terrible presupposition, going back to Freud, that guilt is the problem. Right. I mean, you know, no, guilt, guilt, guilt is to the moral world what pain is to the physical world. Mm-hmm. If I'm sick and I have pain, that pain to me is a signal that there is some kind of disease or brokenness in my body. If I am doing something immoral and unethical, and, and what that means is, if I'm violating the way I was made, then guilt is natural. It's not a man. Now there is such thing as an unhealthy guilt, uh, but guilt itself protects us. It, it's the signal that's to stop you're going in the wrong direction. And we mm-hmm. want to sort of eliminate guilt. I mean, this is really, really dangerous, Nick. I mean, in, in, in school, you're, you're familiar with what they call the self-esteem movement, where oh, you're yeah. not allowed to make them feel... This, is, this sounds nice, but this is how you produce monsters. I mean, uh-huh. this, this is important. I mean, if, if your child does something really cruel, you need to say, you were wrong, I'm ashamed of you. Now, afterwards, you can hug him and say, but I still love you. But you don't say, now nah, what you did is, is, is nothing. Don't be ashamed. No, you have to be ashamed. Yeah. This is how we grow as moral, ethical beings. Uh, so, you know, a lot of these are, are, are deep problems um, mm. and are behind so much of, you know, the, 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 the culture wars, as we call them, mm-hmm. uh, are, are caused by, by this change. in what, Here's maybe the best example of all. Here's the question. What is the problem with man? The traditional Judeo-Christian answer, in some ways, even Greco-Roman, the problem with man is sin rebellion and disobedience right? mm-hmm. but the modern view goes back to Rousseau says the problem with man is ignorance and poverty mm-hmm. now as a Christian I do believe that we should do what we can to eliminate ignorance and poverty but even if we did we would not suddenly become pure people we're still fallen we still sin that is not the deeper problem we and, and you know and that's why 
out of Rousseau comes what we call utopianism, this idea that we can somehow perfect ourselves through legislation, education, all of that sort of stuff. There's a competing thing there. And again, I mean, I wouldn't have become an educator if I didn't sort of delude myself into believing an educated person is a better person. I mean, we really know that you know, a, a, somebody with a fifth grade education could be a saint and a PhD could be a jerk. Right. right? But, but you know, I, I probably wouldn't do my job if I didn't somewhat believe. But I also have to, at the moment, also understand, no. You know, uh, one of the best quotes of the 20th century was said by Solzhenitsyn, you know, the famous Russian writer. He said, the dividing line between good and evil does not run between parties or nations yeah. or theories. It runs to the soul, heart and soul of every human being. Mm-hmm. That's, that's the there. So you see what I mean? What I like about Lewis is that, you know, he makes all the you know, arguments for the existence of God, all of these things, but these other side issues are relevant. You know, that's why, you know, Lewis, did, the, the phrase apparently was coined by Francis Schaeffer, pre-evangelism. Sometimes, like for instance, Lewis spent a lot of times arguing for the existence of God because he thought... I'm wasting my time trying to prove to you that Jesus is the Son of God if you don't even believe in God. So we need yeah. to step back here and, and you know, kind of find some common ground, and then we can move from there on up. So Man. most of Lewis's apologetics is, is two-tiered or two-stepped. First, let's argue for morality, for God, all of that stuff. Then we can move on to argue that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, that's a, a great segue into going into part two, where we do discuss the apologetics arguments themselves. But before we do that, I'd like to remind everyone that this is the Deeper Waters podcast, and you're listening to me interview Dr. Lou Marcos from Houston Baptist University. We're talking about his book, Apologetics for the 21st Century. Now, if you're listening next week, I'm going to have Paul Rainbow on the show. We're going to be talking about his book, Johannine Theology, looking at the the revelation of God, the nature of God in the writings of John, the gospel, the epistles, and the revelation. That's going to be next week, of course, but um, Dr. Marco, so we've got so many people today, though, who, uh, when we talk to them about the doctrine of God, they say, this is a done question already. Rational people don't believe in God anymore. This is uh, a bygone era, and you Christians just need to get up with modern times. I mean, what do you think about something like that? Well, a lot of it goes to the way we define the word total depravity. Mm-hmm. I think if Lewis could be brought into this conversation now, Lewis makes it very clear in The Problem of Pain that he doesn't believe in total depravity. He believes in original sin and then fall, but he didn't like that phrase, total depravity. Now, a, a lot of Calvinists I speak to will, will define it this way. Every part of the human person has been subjected to the fall. So not only is my body fallen, my imagination has fallen, my reason is falling, etc. If that's all it means, I don't think Lewis would have had a problem with it. But a lot of people today, if not in their writing, in their orientation, sometimes push total depravity so far that it almost sounds like we've lost the image of God. So that my black is God's white, my white is God's black. Lewis says, no, we're still moral, ethical beings. We're still made in God's image. We are fallen and cannot earn our salvation in any way. Lewis is not saying that. But we are still moral, ethical beings. This, this is the way Lewis explains it, and, and I think it's so helpful. All right. Yes, God's ways are not our ways. But Lewis explains it this way. As you move, you know, as an atheist might move towards God. Okay, let's say I, I live in Houston. This is a very flat place in Houston, right? 
I've never even seen a mountain. But mm-hmm. I started imagining in my mind, you know, what it might be like if something was higher and higher. And maybe there would be a place so high that there was snow around it all the time. I just, and then somebody took me to the Alps, and I saw it. And Lewis says, what you would say is not, no, no, this is crazy. What you would say is, yes, that's sort of what I had in mind. I never could have guessed it. But now that I see it, I recognize what I was heading for. You see, this is the way I explain it on my webpage and in a lot of the books I read. And I've kind of got this from Lewis. These, these are my own language, but I, I learned it partly from Lewis. I, I don't like to say Christianity is the only truth. In fact, I shock my students by saying Christianity is not the only truth. But, I finish, Christianity is the only complete truth. Mm-hmm. And what do I mean by that? If you say Christianity is the only truth, it's like you're dropping a veil and black and white, complete black and white. Christianity, the only truth says we're all made in God's image. God has you know, put in us a desire for him that we can find bits and pieces of truth in every culture, every religion, every person, every literature, but only in Christianity, actually only in Christ, do we find truth in its complete form. Remember, yeah, I, I like to uh, uh, quiz my fellow Baptists by asking him this question. If you're a Christian, where do you go to find truth in its most perfect and absolute form? And it's a trick question, because almost every Baptist is going to say the Bible. Do you know what the yeah. right answer is, Nick? Jesus. The right answer is Christ himself, okay? Mm-hmm. That's where you know the Bible is, you know, God's word, and it's completely reliable, but the ultimate source of truth is Christ himself, mm-hmm. the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's important, because if the absolute center of truth is Christ, then again, we can get bits and pieces of truth. It's not going to save the pre-Christian writers of Greece and Rome, but parts of the truth are there. I mean, my... my my life verse, if you will, what, what, what is at the very core of everything I do, and so much of what Lewis did, is Acts 17. You know the story, Paul is in Athens, right? Yep. And he is uh, <laughs> over there in the, in, in, in the Agora, the marketplace, and he sees that they have temples to every god. I, I think one ancient writer said, it's easier to find a god than a man in Athens. I mean, there's so many temples to gods. And he noticed there was one temple that said, to an unknown god. <laughs> and when Paul saw me, I know what I'm going to do. He went to the Areopagus where they met and talked to you know the, the new religious ideas, and he said, Men of Athens, I can see that in all ways you are a religious people, for I see that you have temples, altars. He doesn't say, you know, you know the phony thing. He said, you have altars and temples to all these gods. I even notice you have a temple to an unknown god. And then Paul goes on to say what I believe the entire ancient world was waiting to hear. Now, therefore, what you worshipped in ignorance... I will proclaim to you as known. For the God who created the world does not live in temples built by human hands, right? But out of one man, he created every race of men. He set their times and places so that we might reach after him and yearn after him, though he is not far from us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As your own pagan poets have said, we are his offspring. Now, a lot of people don't realize that Paul is quoting two different pagan poets. One pagan poet uh, named Epimenides wrote... In him we live and move and have our being. A different pagan poet named Aratus wrote, We are his offspring. Here is Paul quoting two pagan poets as sources of truth. Not perfect truth. Paul needs to come and give 
the fuller revelation. They only got, you know, it, it's the distinction in theology between general revelation, the way God speaks to all of us through our conscience, through nature, etc., and special revelation. That comes from the Bible, from the prophets, from Jesus. So Paul is, is grabbing, he's found common ground. This, this is the kind of, you know, a classical evidentialist apologetics that I like to do, that C.S. Lewis does. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there is much to be learned from presuppositionalism, but I, ju- I just think the, the, the finding of common ground just works better, if nothing else. Uh, mm-hmm. You're reaching out, making a connection, and then drawing people upward. And nobody ever did that as, as well as Lewis does. It's just unbelievable. I mean, a good example of a modern person that does that would be Tim Keller. I don't know if you're a fan of Tim Keller. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, he, he's in New York City, and he gets these you know, very secular people coming to his church, you know, most of the businessmen, Wall Street stuff, and he reaches out to them, he finds common ground, and then takes them up into the fullness of Christ. But when we need to find uh, a starting place, uh, you know, uh, some people misunderstand Lewis. In Lewis's apologetics books, he doesn't quote the Bible that much. It's not because he didn't believe in the Bible, but that he knew so many of his readers did not accept or even recognize the authority of Scripture. So let's take them and, and it, I, I, let's put it this way. A lot of people have this idea that you come to believe the Bible is the inerrant Word of God, and then you believe in Jesus. It's really the other way around. Right. You come to know Christ, and because you know Him, you recognize the authority of Scripture. Mm-hmm. In fact, you know, I've, I've got lots of reasons to believe in the authority of the Old Testament. I write about it a little bit. But to me, the ultimate reason I believe in the authority of the Old Testament is because Jesus did. Okay? Mm-hmm. Because, gee, I mean, you know, people, it bothers me, but, you know, people, was there a real Adam and Eve? And I just ask them, well, it seems pretty clear that Jesus thought there was a real Adam and Eve. So I have a problem if you say he was wrong. I, I don't know. I have a little bit of a problem there. Um, but, you know, to me, ultimately, the authority of it rests on that. Jesus treats it as the Word of God, uh, and, and, and as something that he does not break, but he does fulfill it, take it to its fullness, uh, draw out the fullness of the special revelation. Right. Since you did mention Tim Carroll, you might not know this, but Tim Carroll, his uh, favorite one to read is, in fact, C.S. Lewis. Oh, oh, yes, that's right. Oh, yeah, he quotes him so often. Yeah, there's uh, even someone... books, yeah. There's even someone who says, I can always tell when you haven't done a lot of work preparing for a sermon because you'll quote C.S. Lewis so much because he's your fallback position. <laughs> That's right. I mean, it's all there. I mean, it, it's unbelievable. He covered so many topics. And, you know, the first book I published was Lewis Agonistes, How C.S. Lewis Can Train Us to Wrestle with the Modern and Postmodern World. And... At first, that's kind of weird. Well, you know, Lewis really died before postmodernism really took off. But, you know, I, I see Lewis as prophetic. He saw where things were going. And, and I think we can take a lot of his ideas and structures and sort of apply them. Uh, and, you know, especially since so many postmodern people are, are, are reached by the imagination, by myth, by those things, Lewis, you know, reaches out uh, and finds common ground. Mm. You know, instead of seeing the new age as an absolute threat, I like to look at the New Age and say, hey, here are people hungry for spirituality. Maybe we can take that and lead them to the true spirituality. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of New Agers are under the false notion that if something is spiritual, it's therefore good, which is very dangerous because there's good spirituality and there's also bad spirituality. Mm Spirituality is not just good in and of itself. Uh, We need to have discernment. But at least these people are open and listening and ready to... uh, one of the things that Chesterton says in, um, in let's see, it's, 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 it's his biography of St. Francis of Assisi. He says, you know, 
it was probably necessary for the church in the early Middle Ages to sort of divorce itself from nature because so many of the pagans worship nature, all of this stuff, they would have been confused. So in some ways, the church had to withdraw for a while. But by the time we get to Francis of Assisi, it's almost as if the church is ready once again to reclaim nature as God's creation. Mm-hmm. He can speak of brother, son, and sister moon, and speak of you know the, the animals as his brothers. I mean, it, we're ready for that now because it's strong enough. And one of, one of my favorite stories, you might know this story, uh, uh, General Booth, the famous founder of the Salvation Army, you know, yeah. they're famous for their brass bands. And apparently one day uh, he was up in an upper window and he heard the brass band playing a song. And he said, you know, I recognize the, the words of the hymn, but I don't recognize that, that beautiful tune. Where did it come from? And, and the person he was asking got kind of red in the face and said, well, actually, that's, well, it's actually a drinking song. <laughs> and Apparently, General Booth put his foot down and said, darn it, why should the devil have all the best tunes? And mm-hmm. apparently from then on, he started taking these tunes and sending them to hymns and things. Right? It's time for, this is what Lewis did, he went on the offensive, he said, it's time for us to reclaim this. The greatest thinkers, the great intellectuals, were the Christians in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. Our, our, our age hasn't created an Aquinas or an Augustine or a Dante, much less an Aristotle or Plato, who pointed the way forward uh, to the truth. So we, we have to stop we have to stop hiding our heads in shame and realizing that Christianity is a multifaceted worldview that has something to say on every single subject. It's not some narrow thing that only talks about emotions and feelings. It has something to say. Uh, I don't know if you've been following this, Nick, but one of the most exciting things in apologetics is Christians are finally standing up and saying, look, look, folks, we would not have modern science if the early scientists were not Christians or at least strong theists. I mean, look at it. Why is it that modern science grew up in the West rather than China? Right? The Chinese had all these great inventions long before we did, movable type, gunpowder, all that, mm-hmm. long before we did in the West, and yet the Chinese did not invent mm-hmm. science as we know it. Well, the reason was because in Eastern religions, China and India, the world is illusion. It's Maya. What, what, what do you, there's no reason to believe it's going to be standard. Right? Only in the Christian West did they understand that the world was created in the image of a, of a balanced, harmonious God. They expected to find design because they believed it was made by a designer. And it was only because they had that faith that they did it. And we've sort of forgotten this. You know, yeah. Galileo and Kepler and Newton, they're, they're all coming out of a Christian background. Uh, and, and their Christianity is actually pushing forward their faith. I mean, you probably know this, Nick, that, that one of the criteria to know if a, a law, like a physics, is true, one of the criteria they look for is elegance. The more yeah. elegant and simple and beautiful it is, the more likely it is to be true. That wouldn't be the case if we were in a sort of haphazard, random universe. Mm-hmm some kind of multiverse thing. Uh, so that's when Christians are getting a little bolder and reclaiming our heritage and it, saying, you know, look, this, 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 the whole idea of science against religion is a very modern notion. And you may know this, Nick, that the whole war between science and, and religion was really invented by two books written in the 19th century, one of them by the president of Cornell. Andrew they Dixon White. Yeah, that's it. That's him. You know, invented this idea of mm-hmm. the war between religion and science. They, mm-hmm. they almost made it up. Yeah. I mean, the proof of this is if you ask anybody, well, give me some proof of that, uh, until the very recent period, all they can ever tell you is Galileo and Scopes. They can't think of any other examples, yeah. and most of those are misunderstood. 
Yeah. Galileo was put under house arrest, okay? He was allowed to continue doing what he did. And actually, Galileo would have, Galileo would have had no problem if he had a wife to tell him to put away his pride and just work with people. Yeah. He was stubborn. He was just stubborn. Mm-hmm. He, he had no problem. In fact, it was originally the Pope who was pushing forward his ideas, but he just went too far. Yeah. And he was too brash. Yeah. Uh, and the Scopes thing, too, is just blown out of proportion. Um, what it was really about. So it, it, it's, again, this is one of the most exciting times to be a Christian apologist. Yeah, well, because yeah. people, you know, wow. Yeah. Well, when you said I'm not, that you weren't sure if I was on top of that, well, actually, back in uh, June 8th of last year, I had James Hannum come on the show. Oh, and he, good. You're familiar with him. I think that, yeah. Yeah, he, he wrote the book, uh, God's Philosophers, and it's about how the medieval period gave us science. And I even right. like to tell people, look, if you're not going to buy into the Christian account of it, then uh, go look at the website of Tim O'Neill, who's actually an atheist, and cool. he destroys this kind of argument that, that the church was anti-science and things of that sort. He, he doesn't put up with it at all. He's very good also at trashing the mm. Christ myth crowd. Doesn't, doesn't give him any... Oh. And, he, and he's, a, he's an atheist, through and through. But, <laughs> and the, the, for the two people you mentioned, you did have uh, Andrew Dixon White, who I believe he was the president right. of Cornell. In fact, Cornell, he, established, Cornell, yeah. he established it because he was tired of all the Christian universities that were out there, and he wrote that history of a warfare between science and religion. Mm-hmm. I don't remember the name of the other book, but it was by John Draper about 25 right, years exactly, later. Yeah. yeah, yeah. they both use the, the metaphor of war, basically, or struggle. Yeah. Uh, and they just imposed that upon it, and it really was not true. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a very good... And then both in the Catholic period and in the early Protestant period, too. A lot of the early scientists were coming out of a Protestant mm-hmm. reform kind of thing and were driven forward by their faith. Yeah, uh, I mean, Christians have always understood what they call the two books. Mm-hmm. There's the book of the Word, that's the Bible, and there's the book of nature. And God speaks through both. I mean, mm-hmm. general revelation and special revelation. The heavens are telling the glory of the Lord. The skies are proclaiming His handiwork. But the second half of that psalm, by the way, that was C.S. Lewis's favorite psalm. Mm-hmm. The second half of Psalm 19 talks about the law, yep. like the law of the Lord. That's special revelation. Yeah. So the two go together. Hand in hand. It's a, uh, Pope John Paul II spoke of reason and faith as the two wings of the bird. Both mm-hmm. reason and faith need to work together to lift the bird into the air. Um, and again, the university was... Now, I mean, the university obviously has its roots in Plato and Aristotle, but the university as we know it was, was created by the Catholic Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it's that idea. And mm-hmm. most of the great education was, you know, that early Jesuit education and whatnot. Um, in fact, that education is so good that those classical Christian schools I mentioned at the beginning of this uh, uh, interview, uh, almost all classical Christian schools are Protestant, very often very much Reformed, and yet they are learning most of their techniques from the great Catholic schools of the past, including mm-hmm. le- teaching Latin and logic and rhetoric and all of these things. Yep. Uh, so, we, 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 again, we, we have to be bolder. Now, then, you know, do it gently. You know, what is it? Always be ready to give an account of the joy that is within you, but with humility. Mm-hmm. But, but still, there has to be a boldness there. Uh, and, 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 you know, it just, we, we kind of forget past victories. I mean, one of my favorite past victories was, you go back 100 or 150 years ago, and the critics had said, oh, no, 
the Bible's just not true. Moses could not have written the five books because language didn't even exist back then. Then later on, they discovered that language goes back way before Moses, almost 500 yep. years before Moses, written mm-hmm. language. Then they said, oh, look at, look at Genesis. Who are these people, the Hittites? There's no such people as the Hittites. They made it up. And then we discovered there was a huge Hittite civilization. Much of it was in modern-day Turkey. Uh, it was a huge civilization that fell. So, you know, the, the point is, a lot of people say, well, look, there's, there's no evidence of, of, of the uh, exodus out of Egypt. Well, what do you expect to find? They were wandering in the desert before. What do you, what do you expect to find? Some leather thong or something? Yeah. Like, like I said, you know, they, they use unfair standards and criteria with the Bible. The basic way it works is everything that we can check in the Bible tends to check out, right? If, mm-hmm. if, if everything that you can check checks out, then you should give the benefit of the doubt to those things which you can't check, at least right now. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and not just, you know, they just do things, you know, Bart Ehrman and stuff, they do things that they wouldn't do to any other text. Yeah. Um, it, it's, just, it, it's just strange. It, it, it's, I mm-hmm. mean, what it does show to me is, is the convicting power of the Word. Mm-hmm. In other words, they realize, I can't just ignore this, I have to defuse it. Yeah. I'll give you an example. I love some, sometimes just to laugh. I love watching the History Channel when they're they're talking about oh, you know, uh, oh, you know when they're talking about the Old Testament and they try to find you know logical scientific explanations. One of my favorite was I watched this whole special for an hour about you know the, the Jericho when when they blow the horns and the and the walls of Jericho come tumbling down. And this guy had this whole special where he was studying the effect of you know sound effects and sound waves and how powerful they are, right? And he, he did something like in this, you know, cube where he did this super sonar energy and it like exploded a pineapple or something like that. Well, that's what I said. Look, it, okay, so they blew their trumpets and it was the sonar waves that, that blew it, but none of the Israelites went deaf, right? It, it just didn't bother them. It just, it blew up the wall, but they were fine. I, I mean, they do these crazy, you, you know the funny story, it may be apocryphal, about the, um, the uh, progressive Sunday school teacher who tells her little children in Sunday school, now children, we used to believe in the parting of the Red Sea, but we now know the Red Sea was only about five inches deep, and so it really yeah. wasn't a miracle. And you know the story, some boy says, oh my gosh, that's an even greater miracle. And what, what are you, it's a greater miracle. God drowned the entire Egyptian army in five inches of water. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it, it's those kinds of things. Uh, but but what, what I'm getting at here is that what really I find fascinating, because I watch these all the time, these specials, whenever they try to come up with, with this scientific explanation, they take the Bible and they follow every little detail of the Bible as they try to construct their belief in comments or whatever it is that did it. The weird thing is, to me, is there a natural authority in Scripture? In other words, why don't they just ignore the whole thing? Mm-hmm. In other words, they, they, there seems to be this sense that these words are true. I can't just dismiss them. I've got to find a way to get around them with a, quote, scientific explanation. Because they do. They follow every single little detail. And, and, and it's, why do you believe it at all? It, it's odd. But hmm. I think, I think that, you know, the word is convicting. Yeah. Uh, and people realize that. No, who, who does this stuff to the Quran and things like that? Yeah, at, this point, at, at this point, before we go on, I do want to remind people that this show here is listener-supported. And I don't get paid for any of this. My guests aren't getting paid by me to come on. They come on of their own free time, their own free wear. 
And as I've said, we've made some purchases. We had to reach into the Deeper Waters funds, and we could really use your support now, especially with end-of-a-year giving coming on. And, yes, your giving is tax-deductible. Now, how does this work? Well, if you go to my blog page at deeperwaters.wordpress.com, you'll see a link that's that says on the right side, help support the work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. And you click that link there. That will take you to Risen Jesus, the ministry of Mike Lacona. Okay, have you gone to the right place? Ooh. Yes. Yes, you have. Because Mike and Debbie Lacona are the main ones who are our fundraisers for this. And that, so you go and you make a donation there. Now, this point is very important. If they don't know otherwise, they're going to assume a donation is for them. But you email me or you email Mike's wife, Debbie, and said, Hey, uh, I made a donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. And when you do that, then they will make sure that that donation comes to us. That donation is tax deductible. And they're some ones that really helped us with getting the new computer here and everything here, using as using the money as best we could to get as many deductions as we could, because we try and make every penny count here. Now, also, of a ways you can donate, you can get some of the ebooks that we've got available. I've uh, got a couple coming out soon. There's going to be one with myself having a debate with an atheist on the problem of evil and. I'm hoping for too long my book on the Apostles' Creed will be out. And, of course, the latest one is the book I co-wrote with my ministry partner, J.P. Holding, called Defining Inerrancy. And then one more way you can support us, you can support us through Amazon. Just click that link on my blog page. And many of the books that you find here, we put them in the Amazon store. And if you buy them through us, through the Amazon store, we get a small amount of the proceeds that come made. It's not much, but every little bit helps. And people, please, please support and encourage us. It's what keeps this show going. Now, Dr. Marcos, do you have any charity organization you want people to support? Well, of course, Houston Baptist University. We now right. have a, Mike McCone is actually one of my colleagues, and we've got yep. a phenomenal apologetics Mm-hmm. Some of my favorite charities that are that are doing the word w- would be the Jesus Film Project, which is just mm-hmm. unbelievable. Mm-hmm. Uh, another one that's very good that your listeners might be interested in is the Discovery Institute, right. which is doing some cutting edge thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mike Lacones is you know one of one of the great um, authorities now in the resurrection. Absolutely. J- j- just to give you an example, and this is not in my book because it's so new, <laughs> um, but one of the things I, I heard Mike give a speech at Houston Baptist University. And it's, it's, I'll see if I can put this in simple terms because it's kind of a complex mm-hmm. argument. But, you know, a lot of people, a lot of modern uh, critics look at the Bible where there's two different stories. Like, you know, the famous story where uh, Jesus healed Jairus' daughter, right? Mm-hmm. And in one version of the story, Jesus is, is, is walking and Jairus himself comes to him and says, come and heal my daughter, right? Then mm-hmm. in the other account, Jairus sends servants that go to Jesus and ask him to heal the daughter, and he comes. And there are some people, oh, there's a country, you know, Bart, Bart Urban, oh, there's a contradiction, it must not be true. Mike Lacona did something I thought brilliant. Fairly contemporary, first century, with the, with the Gospels, is my favorite historian, Plutarch, a Greek historian writing in the Roman age, and he wrote all these famous biographies. And what Mike was able to show is that same kind of contradiction happens, because a lot of times, 
Plutarch would write a life of, say, Julius Caesar, and then he would write a life of Brutus, let's say, or Mark Anthony. Well, mm-hmm. all of those people overlap historically and overlap with one another. And what he shows is, is that this is the same writer, Plutarch, writing in the same, you know, five-year span, and he'll tell a story two slightly different ways. Now, from our modern point of view, that's a contradiction, but not in the time period in which the Bible is being written. These mm-hmm. are just two different ways of emphasizing the story. What probably happened is that Jairus sent his servants and they went to Jesus. But it's also correct to say Jairus went because it's really Jairus's message that's going. Mm-hmm. Again, we, we, we need to understand, and I, I heard you writing about inerrancy. Um, we need to understand that that the Bible is inerrant, but we cannot force the Bible to fit a verification system that's only 200 years old. Right. Our concept of what a contradiction is is totally different than the time when the, when the Bibles were when the Gospels were being written, and so we're being unfair to impose that. Right? If you know, if if the Bible had meant to be a modern textbook, then there would only be one Gospel. There would be no four. There would be one Gospel. Right? But that's that's not the kind of book it is. I mean, one of my favorite in understanding inerrancy, one of the best ways to understand the Bible is that the Bible is like Jesus. In the same way that Jesus is fully God and fully man, so is the Bible fully inspired, fully divine, yet fully written by human beings at the same time. That is what the Bible... The Bible mm-hmm. is not the Quran. You know, the, Muhammad claimed that the Quran was literally dictated to him. And in fact, the word Quran means recitation in Arabic. That is not what the Bible... Now, there are, are places where the prophets are saying, thus saith the Lord. But the Bible is completely inspired by God, but working through human authors. It's incarnational. That's why we should study as much as we can about the history of the first century, study Paul, all of this stuff, because it will help us understand more fully. Um, but but again, it, it, it's going to... People use unfair... Uh, uh, techniques. The better thing to do is compare the Bible to things written about the same time. A good example mm-hmm. of this, the miracles. Take the Gospels and put them alongside a book that was written about a generation before the Gospels, Ovid's Metamorphosis. Ovid, I, I teach that book every year. Right. Ovid's Metamorphosis is full of miracles, but they are absolutely terrifying. People turn into trees, people turn into insects, mm-hmm. people turn into rocks. The only reason we enjoy reading Ovid is because we know it's not true. Mm-hmm. If there was any thought that these, quote, miracles might happen, we would be terrified. That's not at all the Bibles, the miracles in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. They are sober, miraculous accounts. They are accounts that are not crazy and anti-human. They're accounts that say, oh my gosh, the God who created nature is now in the midst of nature doing work. So. We've got to compare the two. Then we will find out that the gospel stories are sober biographies based on eyewitness accounts, uh, and and then we can start treating it as it's meant to be treated, and not imposing upon it a what's called positivism or logical positivism that again is, is foreign to any of the writers. You know, since you uh, brought up the uh, Michael Lacona and the Plutarch research, for people mm-hmm. who are wanting a little bit more on that. And she, we we were a little bit ahead of you because back on July 12th of this year, I interviewed Mike on here talking oh, good, about on that very topic. Yes, excellent, excellent. Yeah. 
And, of course, if anyone wants to hear him on his real passion, just go back to uh, June 29th of 2013, where he came on and talked about the resurrection. Oh, good, yeah, because that's, that's how I first came to know Mike, was, was yeah. through his work. He worked with a, a man named Gary Habermas, who's another excellent uh, apologist on, on Jesus, but also on the resurrection. Yeah, Gary came on in Easter of 2013 to talk about the resurrection. Oh, well, you, you've had quite a roster, huh, Nick? Good. He, yeah. Yeah, I, I try to do the best I can. When we were talking about have you, the got, have you got Lee, Lee Strobel yet? He's also one of my colleagues at HBU now. He was supposed to be come on sometime, but things got pushed back somehow, so we're still working on that. You know, you know we've just hired William Lane Craig as well. Tried to get him on. It yeah, hasn't happened yet, but it, it could still happen in the future. Nick, I had the opportunity at one of our chapels uh, a couple months ago to watch as Lee Strobel interviewed William Lane Craig. Mm. That was amazing. It was like reading a chapter out of a Lee Strobel book. Mm. But he's, he's, you know, a live interview with William Lane Craig. Some, some would say William Lane Craig may be the most, most famous living apologist mm. in terms of logical apologetics and debate and things like that. Mm. He's about the top you can get to. Uh, so it, it's, it's exciting. I mean, like I said, this passion for apologetics and, yeah. and, uh, and, and, and I will tell you something interesting, and this is kind of another reason I wrote my book, is that what's unique about the HBU program we have is that we're calling it a master's in cultural apologetics. What that means is that in addition to teaching the logical scientific apologetics, we're bringing in imaginative things, even, even you, know, you know, how to, how to read a book or watch a movie and determine its worldview. So we're trying to broaden the reach of apologetics to take in all different areas. Again, mm. the arts and imagination as well as yeah. science, reason, logic. And it makes for a more holistic approach. And I try to do that a bit in my book to try to reach that because especially if you're trying to reach postmodern people, mm. the logical, rational arguments may not do it. They need yeah. something more personal, more imaginative testimonies, things like that. Yeah, but since we were talking about the Bible at Sprague, when you were talking about the Exodus, when a couple of aspects I think of is usually I tell people to try and read James Hoffmeyer's books Israel and in wilderness and Israel and Egypt, I think. Uh, it could be Israel and Sinai, the first one, but either way, you can find them on Amazon. And he, he goes and shows that the books definitely do come from a time period that they, they wouldn't be written as later forgeries or things of that sort. Mm. And then a couple of other points I'd bring out is that, first off, I don't expect the Egyptians, if the Exodus happened, to really talk about the Exodus. I mean, what, what do we think? The Pharaoh's, going to say, the Pharaoh's going to say, Dear Diary, today a bunch of slaves <laughs> ran away from us and we tried to chase after them, but our soldiers all drowned in the Red Sea because apparently their God kicked our God's tail. So, uh, oh well, just another loss. It's crazy. And, you know, when you talk about the Egyptians, that shows us too how reliable the Gospels are yeah. because the Gospels include their criticism. Right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know what? The, what? Some of the first people in history to understand Lewis as liar, lunatic, Lord, in other words, that Jesus either was the Lord, or he was crazy, or he was a blasphemer, they understood that perfectly. The Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was saying, and they believed that he was either a blasphemer or crazy and possessed. Mm-hmm. You know, what we're saying is even Jesus' critics don't say, oh, he's just a good moral teacher. No, yeah. his critics say he's a blasphemer and he's crazy. Right, and, he, and then we kind of forget as Christians today that if Jesus was not, in fact, the Son of God, then the Pharisees were absolutely right, right. 
to condemn him for blasphemy and turn him over to the Romans. They, they, they should be heroes, yeah. right? Uh, if, if Jesus was only uh, a good man and nothing else. So, what I've, and, told, and, uh, what I've told people about the crucifixion before, along those lines, I said, uh-huh. the crucifixion was one of two things. It was either the most wicked act ever done that put to death the most righteous man who ever lived, or it was the most righteous act of all ever done that put to death the most wicked man who ever lived. Right. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, like I said, we, we just forget these things. You know, read the Gospels again and notice how the disciples have no problem making themselves look really stupid. Mm-hmm. Okay? These things are not polished. Oh, my right. gosh, they come across as dolts half the time. Mm-hmm. Peter, the leader, is, you know, is shown to be basically betraying Jesus, denying him. I mean, these are things that give it a sense of authenticity. Mm-hmm. And to me, one of the most exciting, I just reviewed a book, it's coming out soon in the city, uh, of, of Mark Lanier, wrote a book called Christianity on Trial. I and just I read that a, book, actually, and I'm going, be, right, good. I'm going to be talking with him, seeing if he's going to be coming on the show then to talk about it. Oh, great. You know, he's a fellow Houstonian. He was just speaking mm-hmm. at HBU on his book. Mm-hmm. And HBU has a publication called The City, and my review will come out. It's coming out pretty soon, either in December or January. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I, I, again, it, it, it's, it's a metaphor I like more. I see at least trouble. I mean, it kind of starts with Josh McDowell, that one of the best ways to test things is to ask yourself, okay, if we took the resurrection and put it on trial... What would an impartial judge and jury decide? Mm-hmm. And again, one of the I mean, Mike Lacona and others have pointed this out is when you look at the different resurrection accounts in the Gospels. From our point of view, they seem to contradict, but actually, those slight discrepancies make mm-hmm. them more believable. And I'll explain right. why. If I am a judge, and you know, three or four eyewitnesses come and they give wildly different stories, I'm going to say there's something wrong here. But if they came forward and gave the exact same testimony, word for word and detail for detail, I would say this is collusion. Somebody's gotten to the, to, to the eyewitness accounts and made them say the same statement. Mm-hmm. What we've got in the Bible is what we'd expect if they're eyewitness accounts. That they would be basically the same, but there would be slight discrepancies given the different perspective from which they're told. I, I think it's uh, is it William Lane Craig, one of them loves to say, if there were two angels at the tomb, then there was one. Okay? Mm-hmm. I love the way he yeah. put that. Um, but, but, but again, I, 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 I like, because that kind of clears the air. And that's what uh, Mark, Mark Lanier is a famous attorney. Right. And he, he tries to take that kind of approach. One of my favorite books is Darwin on Trial mm-hmm. uh, by Philip uh, G. Johnson, using the same kind of, he's a lawyer, uh, lawyer same kind of metaphor. Uh, and, you know, again, let, let, let's look at it that way. What would a jury decide? Let's look at the evidence that way. Uh, because, again, there's an understanding of eyewitness testimony in our legal courts that maybe mm-hmm. has been lost in academia. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I would like the audience uh, to know that I, I did contact Mark Lanier, and his firm sent me the book. And there is interest mm-hmm. on him possibly coming on the show. Then talk about it. I, I haven't get in touch with him again since I've I read it. I hope so. He's a very, very but, busy man. Oh, very busy man, but I hope you can get him, because he's, he's oh, very good. Oh, yeah. I, I heard him when he was debating on Unbelievable a few weeks ago, and as soon as I heard about uh-huh. okay, I got I got to get this book, guy, see if this guy can come on my show sometime. He He's just incredibly good at tearing the opposition apart. One thing that I've noticed about his book that's very different from I me mean, ever is he's not quoting the apologist over and over and over again. Yeah. 
he he's he's calling the witnesses for it, and he's really just interacting with them on their basis. Yeah, it's a little bit different the way he writes. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's odd. I mean, sometimes he gets off on kind of odd tangents, but mm-hmm. I mean, he's still very much grounded. You know, Lewis's mere Christianity is grounded mm-hmm. in the, sometimes it's called the argument by morality. Where mm-hmm. did the moral ethical code come from? Well, mm-hmm. it, it doesn't just evolve. Well, well why is it universal? So he, he, he comes from that perspective, which I think is still a very powerful argument. You have to, uh, you know, account for the fact that we all know what moral ethical behavior is. Yeah. If, if, you know, the, the, the anthropologists, the Margaret Mead people have been trying to convince us for the last 60 years that morality wild, veers wildly from culture to culture, but that's just simply not true. Uh, I mean, the, you know, the only reason we were able to have the Nuremberg trials when they put the Nazis on trial is because we understood that morality, there, there is a right and wrong. We, it, it, two things. The only reason we can have the Nuremberg trials is if we believe, one, that there are transcendent standards of good and evil that are not just man-made, but two, we also have to believe that the Nazis understood right from wrong, because if they didn't, we would put them in an asylum, we wouldn't put them on trial. So we understand that as human beings, we're moral agents. We make more, you know, if, if those 9-11 people had lived, we would have put them on trial, right? And if they said to us, oh, I didn't know that was bad, we wouldn't buy it unless we really believe that they were, uh, you know, a sociopath and really, and there are some people that just literally have no understanding, they're broken, uh, but we would not buy it. Right? I mean, I, I don't care. You, you can be the most diehard relativist, doesn't believe in any, if I cut in front of that guy on the movie line, he's going to say, hey, why'd you do that? You're wrong. And if I said to him, well, in my culture, it's okay to do that, he's not going to buy it. He's not gonna, yeah. You know, we all know what biblical morality is because it's the way we expect other people to treat us you know what it means uh, and, and uh, thank God as, as many apologists have pointed out thank God the atheists and relativists don't, mostly don't live uh, up to what they say they believe you know, when we, words, when you we know, were, they don't live as if there's a morality, thank God yeah. I mean, we've been talking about with the Bible also and it'd be really good to get your input on this thing as uh-huh. your a professor of English, especially, and that's that. Okay. Too many times when I dialogue with atheists on the internet and such, it seems the mistake they make the Bible is often they assume everything has to be interpreted literalistically. Right. And then from there they say, "Where, well, geez, if this is the way God wants to communicate with us, shouldn't He have been more clear?" I mean, isn't this just <laughs> kind of like a laziness we've got in our culture of actually doing any work whatsoever? It is, you know, I, I remember on the, the great movie Expelled, uh, mm-hmm. Ben Stein ends by having this interview with, with um, Richard Dawkins, and mm-hmm. he says, you know, if, if, if you could, if, you know, if, if, if you could ask God one thing, what would it be? And he said, well, sir, you should have made it clearer. But he said, mm-hmm. how much clearer can he be? I mean, right. it's written all across nature. Mm-hmm. We know, I mean, one of the things that drives me crazy is, I mentioned Carl Sagan before, okay, mm-hmm. Cosmos. Cosmos, which has been rebooted now, I guess. Mm-hmm. Cosmos came out, I think, in 1980. Mm-hmm. He begins that series by saying, the cosmos is all there ever is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. Now, talk about a philosophical statement. The thing is, people forget that by 1980, the Big Bang had basically been proven. 
It had not found its way into popular culture. But Carl Sagan knew. There's no way he could not know that by 1980 they had found the background radiation. They knew it. And yet, still, he feels no problem saying that's all there ever was. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so again, you're, you're, you're following a, a metaphysical program there. It's, it's not based on the science. It's based on these assumptions that are not necessarily mm-hmm. scientific. Yeah. But, I mean, um, when people tell me also the Bible has to be clear, I always just want to say, okay, clear to who? To a 21st century American, mm. to a 19th century Englishman, to a 16th century Japanese. Keep going on and on. Yeah. Every single culture has a different idea of what it means to be clear. Right. And, I mean, you do know that both Augustine and Aquinas mm. said that God did partly make the Bible difficult mm-hmm. so we wouldn't be lazy. <laughs> I mean, they, right. they, they, I'm using modern language, but that's basically what they both said, mm. is that, you know, we need to struggle and wrestle with it so we won't be mm-hmm. lazy. And, and, and we, we can't, it is, I mean, it, it is clear, and, and almost everything that's said in a metaphor is said clearly somewhere else. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are unfair, too, because today, almost every person today says, the sun rose and the sun set. When right. we say that, we're not saying we believe that the sun revolves around the earth, right? But we mm-hmm. still use that language. It's, it's mm-hmm. poetic language that everybody uses today. And yeah. sometimes we don't even realize how poetic we are, right? When we say... The, the law of gravity, we are also using a metaphor, right? The law, oh, in other words, you mean a rock is like a citizen obeying the law and falling. I mean, these are metaphors. You know, we, we, we have to kind of get out of what Lewis called chronological snobbery. Mm-hmm. I mean, we too are following metaphors, and a lot of times we project onto the cosmos what we want to see. In fact, just the fact that Carl Sagan called his, his program Cosmos explodes because cosmos means ordered universe. That's what the word cosmos means. It, it's the same root as the word cosmetics. Mm-hmm. And at the root of the Greek word cosmos is the root word ornament. Mm-hmm. The idea was that the cosmos was the ornament of God. It showed forth his beauty. So it's ironic that he would even use the word cosmos. When we're talking about the Bible being clear in some aspects, you know, even then we can say even the parts that we easily understand in many ways there are still so many complexities an example I'm thinking of right now is I'm reading a book by Ken Bailey called Good Shepherd and he was a professor at a seminary in the Middle East for several several decades and okay. so he, he writes from that perspective and he he starts off looking at Psalm 23 now any one of us can pick up the Bible read Psalm 23 right. and we understand this is a beautiful psalm of protection and grace. Even if you don't believe the Bible, you know what it's talking right, about. It's true. But then when you get to a book like Ken Bailey's and he starts taking you through Psalm 23 and showing you how this works with with shepherding over there and how people would have understood it, like, oh my gosh, now this makes so much more sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Oh, I can just, you know, and actually in some ways... To me, the most exciting development in New Testament studies, uh, gospel studies, in the last 70 years is reclaiming the Jewishness of Jesus. Mm-hmm. Because, if you, in fact, was he the one that wrote Jesus through Middle Eastern eyes? I don't remember if that's the same author. Yeah, yes, but it was. I think it is, yeah. And, and the, uh, but, you know, I just, you know, things like, you know, I, I've heard a lot of Messianic Jews talk about when Jesus says, you know, I, I go to heaven to prepare a place for you, then I'll come and get you and take you where I am. Mm-hmm. And to understand that the way the Jews did it in, in, in that day is that the, 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 the groom would go out and build a house before he came and took his bride away. 
So, I mean, you know, when, when you see it in, in terms of Jewish wedding rituals, it's even more beautiful. He's mm-hmm. literally the bridegroom going to prepare the home, and he will come take the bride, the church, the bride of Christ, with mm-hmm. him. And yeah. you're right, it, 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 it sort of opens your eyes, and you realize the, mm-hmm. the depth of meaning uh, to it. And, and again, you can just keep going deeper and deeper. I mean, the gospel story, uh, the gospel at its core, is simple enough for a child to understand, and yet there are endless depths mm-hmm. of meaning, on and on and on and on. There, there's such a rich theology there. Um, yeah. And, you know, just just the theology of the Trinity you spend your whole life, yeah. of the incarnation, the mm-hmm. atonement, the, the richness of these things that are mm-hmm. there um, is, is um, again, I mean, you know, Augustine. I mean, can you imagine how much Augustine and Aquinas would have written if they had a word processor? Wow. Unbelievable. But yeah. they wrote all that stuff scratching it down, you know? Shakespeare mm-hmm. could have written another 20 plays, at least, I'm sure. So it's amazing what was done by these people. Um, but again, it's good that we're, and it's it's particularly good for you know Protestants, evangelicals. We're starting to reclaim the past more, the tradition. Because mm-hmm. you, know, you know, a lot of times, especially Baptists, you know, like ah, that, that's it. It's right now. We're reclaim. And by the way, not just the Catholic past, but the Protestants have a very rich tradition in Calvin and Luther and all these other people. People are in our country. Jonathan Edwards may be the most intelligent. American writer of all time, you know, I mean, the, the depth of, of his understanding, uh, where we're starting to reclaim these things, and that's exciting, yeah. um, uh, not hiding away. If someone's interested more also in the Jewishness of Jesus, we haven't had a show entirely on that, but the closest we probably got is back earlier this year on March 1st, we had Craig Evans come on to talk oh, about the, great. The, the Dead Sea Scrolls and how that influences our understanding of Jesus and Christianity. Great. Mm-hmm. Great. He was just at my university mm-hmm. debating a Jewish man who makes it his goal to deconvert Messianic Jews. I can't remember mm-hmm. his name, but that's his ministry, to grab Jews that have accepted mm-hmm. Jesus and make them come back. And on our campus, he debated Craig Evans, which is pretty exciting. You know, when you were talking yeah. about, about uh, reading the Bible, one thing I've told people before, and I've told this to my own wife, is that when you're reading a passage in the Old Testament there, when you read it for a time being, I want you to not be a Christian as you read it. Because I want you to picture yourself as a Jew at the time who doesn't mm-hmm. know a single thing about Jesus and say, okay, how am I going to understand this? Apart from Jesus entirely, just how would I understand if I heard it? The text wouldn't be meaningless. You'd still get something out of it. And then you can put on your Christian hat after that and say, okay, now as a Christian, how can I see this text in the light of Christ? In the Middle Ages, they had this amazing thing that they called the four levels of meaning. Mm-hmm. And almost any verse in the Bible, they could show it had a literal meaning. In other words, mm-hmm. a sort of historical literal meaning. Yeah. It had an allegorical meaning that pointed to Jesus. Mm-hmm. It had a moral meaning right. that had a message for us. And then it had what they called an anagogical meaning that sort of led up to the last things, to death and judgment and the New Jerusalem and all that. Mm-hmm. And all of these levels of meaning were sort of interacting with each other simultaneously. A beautiful uh, dynamic understanding of scripture and again sometimes we can be overly literal uh and, and, and the literal is always there but we don't want to reduce it to the literal right like, I, let me just, one of the things i talk about in the book and my other books is that according to the rigid fundamentalist right mm-hmm. language is a one-to-one correspondence and therefore it's true 
According to the deconstruction postmodernists, language is slippery and therefore it's meaningless. Mm-hmm. But I like to say language is slippery and therefore more meaningful. And I'll give you a good example of this. You know that there's been an ongoing debate for the last 60 years about the prophecy in Isaiah, uh, the virgin shall conceive and give birth to a child, his name will be Emmanuel. Yeah. Now, as you probably know, the word in Hebrew there can mean virgin or it can mean young girl. Mm-hmm. Hebrew is a much more poetic language than Greek. You know, there's less words, the words, whereas Greek is, you know, much more precise. Yeah. The Greek word virgin, parthenos, can only mean virgin. Right? Mm-hmm. Well, here's a wonderful thing. When Isaiah said the virgin should give birth, he was making, as often happens in the Old Testament, a dual prophecy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that prophecy was fulfilled pretty quickly when his wife, a young woman, gave birth to a child. But the fullness would not come until a literal virgin in Greek, would give birth to a child. Only the slipperiness of the Hebrew word there mm-hmm. allows for the dual prophecy. So sometimes the slipperiness makes it more true. I've got a, 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 a chapter on the Da Vinci Code. I don't know if it's quite mm-hmm. that relevant to when mm-hmm. I wrote it, but I still think. But I, I, I try to do an interesting, you know, after I you know, debate his ideas, I step back and say, you know what? If, if he was really true to his book, The Da Vinci Code, he should be, Brown should be a Christian. Because the people, one of the reasons people read the Da Vinci Code is not just because of the, the, the naysaying, it's because it's so exciting, the way it's filled with riddles that you've mm-hmm. got to solve and yeah. all of this stuff. Well, you know what? The most exciting riddle book ever written is the Old Testament. It's filled with prophecies that, let me give you my, my favorite example, uh, Nick, is, is in Revelation, I mean, I mean Isaiah 53, you know, the man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Right. It says of the Messiah, right, that, um, that he was, you know, uh, you know, he was whatever killed, you know, with 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 evil men, but was with a rich man in his death. Now, by itself, that doesn't seem to make any sense. What do you mean? He's with the wicked, and yet he's with a rich man. What's going on? It doesn't get its full meaning until the crucifixion, when Jesus was crucified between two thieves, but his body was laid in the tomb of the rich Joseph of Arimathea. Mm-hmm. Now, that is a riddle that beats anything in the Da Vinci Code. It's yeah. a riddle that doesn't, but once you, oh my gosh, of course. I mean, the greatest riddle of all is that the Old Testament is filled with two sets of prophecies. One shows the Messiah as a suffering servant. The other shows the Messiah as a reigning king, like King David. Well, mm-hmm. only when we get to the Old New Testament, we realize, now I know why there's two strains, because there are two comings. The first mm-hmm. coming of Christ the suffering servant, the second time Christ comes, he won't come as a baby again, he'll come out of the sky, riding on the horse, like the lightning from east to west, right? King of kings and lord of lords. And, and so, but you wouldn't know that till you get to the other side. Mm-hmm. Then you realize, so, in other words, people that love the Da Vinci Code, if they want, and first of all, one of the other things about the Da Vinci Code that's beautiful is it's focused on the sort of divine femininity. Well, if you want to find divine femininity, you go to the Bible, okay? You don't go to the Gnostics who are anti-feminine. Uh, it, it, it's just the craziest thing. I, mean, I, I really wonder sometimes if anybody reads the Gnostic Gospels. There are yeah. all sorts of feminist critics, like Elaine Pagels is the most famous. All the feminist critics love the... Have you ever read a Gnostic Gospel? You know yes, how it ends. I have. <laughs> Mary, if you're a good girl, you'll be a man someday. I mean, the, 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 the Gnostic Gospels are actually misogynistic. Yeah. When, women when because someone, women have babies. When you know? someone tells me, for instance, why aren't these gospels including the canon I was like look go read them then you'll know (laughs) yeah I mean the the, the simple argument I make 
to, to prove that the Gnostic Gospels are not only not historical, but actually anti-historical, is that if you take the Gospel of Thomas or Philip or any of them, remove Jesus and replace him with Buddha, and it doesn't change anything. Mm-hmm. Because it's just a bunch of sayings. There's nothing historical at all about it. It's mm-hmm. almost a, a rejection of history. It's a rejection of the flesh and materiality. It's mm-hmm. Gnostic. And, and Gnosticism always ends up misogynistic because women do this terrible thing called having babies, making more flesh, making mm-hmm. more matter, and we don't want it, right? So, right. It, it's, it, again, it, 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 uh, Chesterton actually says this. I think I quoted in my book. Chesterton says, uh, people are so strange, okay? They attack Christianity for hunting down the heretics, and then in the same breath, they attack Christian, preach the Catholic Church, attack the Catholic Church for being so anti-body and anti-sex, and they get this like, wait a minute, wait a minute. The ones that were anti-body are the Gnostics that they labeled heretics and chased out of the church. Okay, so you can't have it both ways. Mm. In, in other words, they, they, they attack the church for believing something that actually is what the heretics believe and what the church was against. Mm. Yeah. Now, that doesn't mm. mean individual priests can't be anti-body, but the church itself, yeah. you know, C.S. Lewis said, Christianity is almost the only religion that says flesh and matter are good. Right? They're fallen, but they're still good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know, it's... it's Well, uh, Dr. Marcos, this has been a fascinating interview, and we've really had a lot of good discussion going on, but unfortunately we have reached that time where we have to start drawing to a close. So if anyone's been fascinated by what you've said, and I hope they have been, where can they go to find out more about you? Do you have a blog or website or anything like that? I have a website, and Uh it's real easy to get to. It's lumarcos.com, www, and lumarcos is L O U. M-A-R-K-O-S, it's a Greek name, Uh L-O-U-M-A-R-K-O-S dot com. Uh If you go there, my webpage has all sorts of stuff. I have all sorts of links to read essays for free. Mm -hmm. I also have a bunch of YouTube links of different lectures I'm giving on Lewis and other things. Uh, And then there's there's a link to my Amazon page and stuff like that. But there's all sorts of free Mm -hmm. resources on the webpage. And and, and on my webpage, you can find my email. And if you want to email me, uh, do feel free. I'm like C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis answered all of his mail. I answer all my email. And I spend a lot of time every day doing email. Mm-hmm. So if you email me, you will, you will get a response. Okay. Uh, and, uh, and like I said, lot, lot, lots of stuff to look at there. The, the book is Apologetics for the 21st Century. Looking on Amazon, at this time, the Kindle edition is available for nine ninety nine, and the paperback yeah. is fourteen forty. Uh, Dr. Marcos, do you have any uh, final message you would like to leave for the Deeper Waters audience today? Just... You know, there are so many resources out there. Go and read these books. I mean, they they will not only teach you and equip you to share with people at work or whatever, they will remind you as the leader that, again, Christianity has this huge intellectual tradition. It is the very foundation of what we think of as Europe. Mm -hmm. And and so we we need to understand, we, we need to not be afraid. We need to stop splitting our lives into you know, Sunday over here, and then the rest of the world over there. Mm-hmm. The Christian worldview has something to say about every area of our lives. Mm-hmm. Well, Dr. Marcos, it has been fascinating having you on here, and I hope we'll see you back here again sometime. Well, great. Thanks, Nick, and, and uh, I'm glad you're doing this ministry, and mm-hmm. uh, I hope everybody supports you. <laughs> uh, I hope they do, too. And remember, next week... We're going to have Dr. Paul Rainbow on. We're going to be talking about Johannine theology. So I hope you all be here for now.